At this point, there was, I think, a couple of kidnapping attempts on me. And remember, Israel's a very small country and it's hard to hide me, you know, especially being the only woman doing what I was doing. And there was a lot of tension in the country and at the time. And just one incident, you know, I was working the night shift with my partner and we saw a police cruiser parked on the side and two officers were sleeping with their kind of hugging their M16s, which you can't do. It's very dangerous in the area that we were in. And we went to the car and we said, you know, what are you doing? But it's a different department. So we basically left and 45 minutes later, they were assassinated and all hell break loose in the country. And the next day too, you know, my department gets a picture of me saying that, oh, like threats of, that I was a target. So they had to hide me at that point, right? And just knowing that I couldn't go anywhere without being fully armed or, you know, going into my car and checking underneath over whatever, even starting my car was, my heart would start to beat and whatever, you know, is it rigged or, you know, so I started to become paranoid and, and afraid. And, and so I said, you know, I need to transition. And honestly, the only thing that really made me feel alive and the only thing I wanted to do at that time was be a pro racer. You know, what I want to do and what I'm determined to do, I'll make it happen. I'll find a way to make it happen. The Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings, all you beautiful people dispersed across Podlandia, the podcastosphere, the RRP diaspora. My guest today is the remarkable Leah Goldstein, and you, my friends, are in for a treat. Leah is an extraordinary athlete and just an absolute force of nature, a woman who has lived one of the most interesting and dynamic lives you will ever come across. At just 17, she won the Bantamweight World Kickboxing Championship. She then joined the Israeli Defense Force, becoming a Krav Maga specialist, the first female elite commando instructor, and an undercover special forces intelligence officer. Then, in yet another dramatic life pivot, Leah spent a decade as a professional cyclist. A devastating crash ended her pro career and nearly her life. She was told she might not ever walk again, would certainly never race again, but undaunted, Leah returned, she reinvented herself as an ultra cyclist. And this past year in 2021, at age 52 and entirely plant-based, I might add, became the very first woman in the 39-year history of RAM, the 3,000-mile race across America, to beat everyone, all the men, and outright win the solo division. It's just a mind-blowing story, and it's coming right up. But first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, 
the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. 
Okay, so before this past summer, I admit I had never heard of Leia. I first came across her story in the wake of her recent Ram victory and was amazed by her accomplishments. So I started looking a little bit more deeply into her story. And the more I learned about the vast diversity of her experiences, the more obsessed I became. And because her story is so wild, I became even more amazed that she isn't more widely known. I mean, I personally wanted to know more, I needed to know more, and I wanted more people to know about her. So here we are. This one hits many sweet spots, mindset, endurance, high performance, inspiration, motivation, dramatic life pivots, and overcoming seemingly insurmountable obstacles. It's a conversation about grit, perseverance, work ethic, and the never quit drive required to do amazing things. But more than anything, I think this one is really about how important it is for all of us to heed that inner voice and leverage it to tap the hidden reservoirs of potential that reside within us all so that we can all make audacious dreams manifest. So without further ado, this is me having a conversation with Leah Goldstein. So nice to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an honor. (laughs) So excited to talk to you. I came across your story in the wake of uh, the Ram victory. I was enthralled by what you had achieved. And I started looking more into your story and just became progressively more and more incredulous with all the amazing things that you've done. And I knew immediately I wanted to get you on the show. And I also think maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like your story, I mean, certainly you got a fair amount of media in the wake of the Ram victory, but I feel like your story is not nearly as well known as it should be. And I almost feel a responsibility, like people need to know. Thank you. Well, you have your me story. Here today, it's unbelievable. So. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Thank you know. You. <laughs> so I'm honored and delighted to be able to help kind of spread the word about all the stuff that you've done. Thank you. Um, I mean, let's just start at the beginning because we're going to get into RAM and all the details. I have so many questions about that, but your background and your upbringing is is fascinating. Your mother's from China. Your mm-hmm. dad's from the Soviet Union. He was a national boxing champion, mm-hmm. and just walk me through like a little bit of the childhood story. Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, I was made in Israel, born in Canada. My mother was seven months pregnant. You know, uh-huh. um, my father was in the military. He docked in Vancouver, Canada, and he just saw opportunity there. He was young, he was like 19 years old. Mm-hmm. So he decided to move the whole family to Canada. And, and you your know, grandparents were like, had, had, had like, talk to me about them. Cause there's, there's a whole part. Oh, there that's too. a whole different story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah my, well, my mother was, um, you know, she was born in China mm-hmm. and she lived there for 14 years till the communism came in and then they escaped the communism and they actually immigrated to Israel. And then my father was born in the Soviet union and they came to Israel. My grandmother went through the Holocaust. So it was, you know, quite the the yeah. journey, you know, getting to the to the Holy Land, right. per se, right? You know, 
So, yeah. So you end up in Canada, that's where you're born. Correct. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, and did you grow up as a, uh, I mean, with your father being this boxing champion, I, you know, I'm having these visions of him, <laughs> you know, some sort of karate kid situation when you were younger. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> we like, you know, how most kids, you know, they watch, you know, in Canada, it's hockey, right? Or football mm-hmm. or soccer. I mean, I grew up watching boxing. My father was just every chance he had to watch, you know, t- boxing on television. That's what we did together, right? So, and he's very animated and he would teach me the way they stand, the way they move, the way they punch, right? So I kind of had that in me before I even started the whole Taekwondo. Uh-huh. Did you uh, w- did you go into boxing before Taekwondo or how did that begin? No, no, I didn't plan to go to Taekwondo. I was bullied when I was a little kid, right? Like every lunch hour between 12 and 12.45, I was chased by a group of eight boys and couldn't tell the teachers, you know, didn't want to tell my parents. So I came home one day, I got an hour of television. I start flipping through the channels. I'm looking for a show called Gilligan's Island, right? And then I come across this one channel and I see this small Asian guy fighting five, 10, 15 people and it was, Bruce Lee. Uh-huh. And I said, oh my God, you know, this guy can fight off 30 people. I just have to fight off eight. I have to learn whatever he's doing. Yeah. And that's how the whole Taekwondo started. And I begged right. my mother for lessons. <laughs> You're, you are your father's daughter, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So he's probably thrilled. No, nah, no. Nah. Not so much at that time, you know what I mean? He was, cause he knows like the impact that boxing can have, you know, you get a mm-hmm. lot of hits to the head and stuff. So when the Taekwondo transitioned to kickboxing, it took him, took him a bit to get used to that idea, mm-hmm. right? Right, cause it was non-traditional compared to his notion of combat sports. Right, yeah, yeah. exactly. But Taekwondo first, but from what I understand, I mean, you picked this up pretty quickly. The Taekwondo just came natural to me. And I think because I was very athletic as a child, you know, as I was riding my bike or running mm-hmm. or doing whatnot, you know. Um, so I excelled fast. By the time I was 12 years old, I was a junior national champion. And at 13, I just didn't feel challenged anymore. And that's when I transitioned into kickboxing. A black belt suggested, you know, you're more of a kickboxer. So then there was one kickboxing studio, like kind of in Skid Row area of Vancouver called Hastings Street. And, you know, I remember going to that studio and then I just felt at home. Why didn't you stick with Taekwondo? I mean, you had such amazing success immediately. Because it's very traditional, right? Like I got red carded a lot for too much contact Uh and I was a martial (laughs) artist that stood like a boxer. So you can imagine a 12 year old Mm -hmm. girl that stands like a boxer, right? You know, so like I said, Taekwondo is more traditional. Karate is more traditional, right? More forms and more beauty and not as realistic to, you know, real street fighting as boxing or kickboxing, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or cage fighting or whatnot, you know, but I just felt at home in that kickboxing studio and the skill just came really natural to me. So walk me through your progression as a kickboxer. Well, it was, well, it was fun. Okay, well, I was a second degree black belt and I remember going into the studio. I had a big head, you know, cause I knew I was good. I mean, I barely got through the door. I, you know, was so um, on myself, right? And then the, kick, the kickboxing coach comes up to me and he goes, you know, can I help you? And I said, I want to try this kickboxing because I was, you know, I'm black belt, not don't feel challenged. So he just felt that I, he wants to teach me a lesson basically. So he puts me into a boxing ring. Remember, I'm second degree black belt. He brings in the small little skinny kid about half my size. And I think, damn, I'm going to kill him. But I didn't know it was his most skilled kickboxer, right? So we stand there, this little match starts, whatever. He throws a jab and then hits me in the nose, right? And I've never been hit like that before because Taekwondo is more traditional. Mm-hmm. And I get mad and angry and I start throwing my best moves and nothing is making contact. So he basically grabs me from the ring. He tells me, 
go home and go and think, think about it. Cause he could see I was frustrated and I was trying not to cry. You know what I mean? I go home and, and, I, and I felt totally deflated, right? And I remember trying to sneak into my house. And as soon as I opened the door, I see my mother standing there and I could feel the trickle of blood down my nose. And she's looking at me like, what the heck happened? And the only words that came out of my mouth was mom, I'm gonna be a kickboxer. Uh-huh. Next day I went back to that studio. Yeah, and you're 13 <laughs> at this point? I'm, th- I'm barely 13. Barely yeah, 13. Barely 13. Right, and and the, the, the instructor, didn't he tell you at some point early on, like, listen, you're, like, you're rough, but you stick with this and you're gonna be a champion? Oh, he gave me roles. I mean, he said to me, you wanna do this? He goes, no smoking, no drinking, no drugs, no friends, no swear, train seven days a week, train twice a day. Then he says, you do that, 17, I make you world champion. Those are the words that came out of That's his mouth. That's an amazing thing to say to a young person. Yeah. And that was, but I learned at that age, like what does it take to be the best? And it's 110%. So mm-hmm. I didn't do the party thing or the friend thing or whatever. And I didn't train, you know, five days a week, twice a day. I trained seven days a week, three times a day. Cause I was that determined. Right. And at 17, you indeed become world champion. At 17, I become world champion, correct. It's unbelievable. Yeah. What's the typical age of world championship athletes in mid-20s. that discipline? <laughs> mid 20s. Oh, yeah, mid 20s. Right? Yeah. So it must have been quite a thing, you being that much younger than everybody else. So you're bantamweight at the time? I, correct. I was yeah. bantamweight. Um, I was just, like I said, the the skill was what, like, I mean, I remember my coach, cause I was so slight and small. He would, he didn't want me to wear short sleeve shirts cause he didn't want people to see how skinny my arms were, right? But you know, it's a matter of how you throw the punch, you throw the power behind it, right? And the way you stand and just because of my speed and my skill, that's why I excelled so fast in, in the sport. Mm-hmm. So it had to be quite an experience to know that you were the best in the world at such a young age. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's not something you think about because I'll, yeah. I'll be honest with you. Like, you're very all shucks about the you whole know, thing. <laughs> no. you, you know, well, you know, my coach. I'll tell you something. Like, you know, I, I mean, I was very good at what I did, but I never ever got complimented complimented by my coach. He never, you know, said, "Oh, this is what you're good at." He only focused on the things that I was bad at. Even when I won the world championship, he said he whispered in my ear, "You could have done better." Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, you know, that there's always there's always one up on you, right? So. You always got to stay grounded no matter where you are because, you know, it, when you are at the top of your game, all it means you have to work twice as hard to stay there. Yeah. And what did you learn about discipline and perseverance and meeting obstacles, at, you know, as a young person who is so devoted to this specific sport discipline? I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, it was, it taught me what, what it takes to be the best and it's lasering and it's 110% and it's a lot of sacrifice, right? Like, you know, you tell a 13 year old kid to give up all the fun things, most will probably say no, right? But I knew those sacrifices would, you know, would pay off at the end. Mm-hmm. Good times and friends are always gonna be around, but I think especially unique opportunities won't. Yeah, you seem to have a, a, a predisposition, like an, a deep understanding that delayed gratification is the path, right? Like you're able as a young person going through adolescence and the teen years where there's a lot of temptation to kind of do a lot a lot of different things and get in trouble to just be very focused on the larger goal. Well, I mean, I knew I had to work harder at a lot of things because even in school, let's go back to school. I mean, I had a learning disability, right? You know, I was put in a special class and I knew I had to work twice as hard as everybody else, but I was determined to graduate with honors and I did. But I knew for someone like me, I had to work twice as hard. Even, mm-hmm. even when I was a child, my left leg was growing at a faster rate than my right leg. It's longer, it's stronger, the foot is bigger. And doctors told my parents that I'd never excel in athleticism. 
You know, so when you're left mm. with that, you know you got challenges, but are you going to hang on to that, or are you going to prove to people what you can do with what you don't have? Right. right. You're the, you're the kind of person who, when somebody tells you you can't do it, that's just it. fuel for the fire, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing: you you become world champion at 17, and I'm just baffled at why you didn't stick with it and just continue to pursue it. Because that was never my dream. Like you know. My dream. It was your dream enough to be so disciplined and focused and train so hard for it. Well, you know that was a, a, like Bruce Lee was a problem to a you know a, to mm -hmm. a solution, right? Or a solution to a problem, I should say, right? You know, what I wanted to do from as young as I could remember, from when, from when I was seven years old, is I wanted to be James Bond, right? You know, and I knew when I graduated when I from high school that I was going to go back to Israel and I was going to go into the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, and I was going to really start my career at that point. Where did where did that idea come? from like what's the genesis of that dream okay well my you know my family is as you know they're all from Israel yeah. and going back every year as a child I knew that members of my family were involved in some kind of work that was, was secretive because there's members of my family that I would only see maybe for an hour once every five years or whatever you know so I knew there was something secretive there that just intrigued me and it just felt and I as I got older I knew it was something insecurity and it's something that I felt that I, I needed to do that I was born to do that I was meant to do mm -hmm. and and it was on my radar from like I said from as young as I could remember so you had extended family members that were like Mossad agents or I'm not going to say yeah, they were okay. in security. <laughs> they won't say what? Security, <laughs> yeah. quote unquote, right? <laughs> right. Like yeah. we can't talk about it, but that's pretty romantic and intriguing for a young person to hear. Like, wow, what are they really doing? Exactly. Well, yeah, it just fascinated me. Yeah. Like, you know, um, my parents speak many different languages. So when like so my uncle, when he would come in and, you know, my mother, for example, she was very close to her brothers, you know, and she didn't want my sister or I to understand, they would swap languages into Russian, you know? Mm. And so I started to try and pick up as much Russian as I could to understand the conversations that were going on, right? So it's kind of how we were brought up too, you know? I mean, my parents never wanted us to say anything on the phone or you don't, you know, you won't be careful who you make friends with, be careful what you tell your friends. So we kind of had that upbringing of, you know, everything is kind of a secret and keep it in the family sort of thing. Wow, so your parents, they were associated with security in some way? If they were, they're really good at it because I don't know. Right? You don't know, <laughs> no. I mean, what did they do to make a living? Well, my father, he, um, he owned industries, like he was a machinist, right? So uh -huh. he bought into companies, you know, as he got more successful. My mom was a registered nurse. Mm -hmm. By day. By day, but who knows right. what she did at night. <laughs> oh my God. But you have this idea like, this is the path for me. I'm gonna go to Israel. Oh, and, absolutely. And enlist in the IDF. But yeah. because you weren't living in Israel, you didn't have, obviously if, you, if you're an Israeli national and you're living in Israel, right? You go into the army at a certain age for a couple of years. You ha yeah, it's mandatory. Uh -huh. Boys do three years, girls do two years, whether you like it or not. But no. you weren't under that mandatory no, mandate. No, no. So I had, it's called volunteer to the army. So I went back to, I could because my parents are Israeli, right? You know, and uh -huh. so I immigrated, I got my Israeli passport and, you know. Right, so you go to Israel at 18. Mm -hmm and it's the IDF, correct? right? Yes. And typically women do like a two year tenure with this and men do three? Correct, yes. Yeah, so walk me through the process of getting indoctrinated into so, the army. Okay, so for certain people, like the IDF is a very sophisticated organization. Like they don't just 
pick you. They know everything about you and where they're going to place you. So if they see something unique that they can use, you're going to be isolated and put into a different department. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where I was at because I think they looked at my background of where I came from. I don't look Israeli, you know. Um, so, you know, I could work, I'd be very useful to do certain yes. things. I was very athletic. You know, I was fearless. I learned very fast. You, and you spoke some Russian. I, I understood you speak Russian. Chinese also? No, no Chinese, uh-huh. no. Right. <laughs> no, no Chinese. I mean, you know, they're looking at your resume. All right, world kickboxing champion, speaks a little Russian. Yeah is already, you know, completely bought into this. Yeah. Like there's a future here. Oh, for sure. They can mold you any which way you want it. Cause I was uh-huh. also very patriotic at the same time. Right. So they've yeah. got somebody perfect. Gung-ho. Yeah. So what is the, um, the training like? Like you don't go immediately into some kind of commando special forces unit, right? You, like get you, sele- do- you, get, you go through a training process. It's called the selection process. So they took 350 of, um, of the soldiers that have something unique that's kind of, different from the ordinary, mm-hmm. you know, citizen, let's say, right, you know. So they put us through a series of training, both physically and mentally, and they keep cutting you down from that 350, it goes down to 250, then 250. And then from there, you go into a more intensive training course, right, you know. Mm-hmm. So for me, because of my background in in um, in kickboxing, it was world kickboxing, you know, they wanted to put me in base eight, which was, um, it was a special unit space that trains commando and special units from not only in Israel, but outside of uh, Israel as well in North America, you know, uh, Europe, Asia, um, and it's called Base Eight. Mm-hmm. And there's a unit there called Krav Maga. I don't know if you've heard of that sure. term b- before. So, Krav Maga. It's a Hebrew. Krav means fight. Maga means hand. So lethal hand combat. So I was in that department. And when I was recruited into that department, after going through a series of tests, I was one of the first female instructors to train the commando. Mm-hmm. So how long between you enlisting and you becoming a Krav Maga instructor? Six months. Oh wow! Intense. Yeah, and that's oh, I thought like, maybe like two years or something. No, 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 because it's but right. it's like intense. Like they don't <laughs> let you go anywhere. Like I uh-huh. wasn't released to go home. I think in that period, probably for twenty four hours, mm-hmm. they, they let me go to be a civilian and have a little bit of fun. And then right. Come back. So it yeah. starts out with some kind of basic training instruction and then it pivots into more of a special forces kind yeah. of like SEAL team we situation. Actually, yeah, we actually skip the basic training because basic training, every soldier must learn it, how to use a, you know, Uzi and M16, mm-hmm. certain skills like climbing a wall, rope, you know, women, boys, girls, whatever, everyone has to learn that skill. We bypassed that because we went through a testing kind of period for a week to see what we can do. And it's like an excelled like basic training program. And then it goes into another, you know, another form of, um, training that's even more intense. Mm-hmm. So you're, are you the first female Krav Maga instructor or one of the first? I was the first female instructor to train the commando. I see. So the, the commando is like the Navy SEALs, you know, uh-huh. um, because what's unique about that, it's not just, you know, you don't stand there with a the clipboard. I have to do the training with them. And so they would send me on different, um, they'd ship me out to different locations in the country. I didn't even know where I was going to you know, and how long I'd be for. I just knew that they'd tell me what I need to pack and take. And then we go on special assignments and I'm part, I was part of their training to I train see. the soldiers. Right, yeah. and they're older, I presume. The soldiers? The soldiers that you were training. Some, I mean, yeah, you're 18 I, at the, this I'm point, eight, right? Yeah, I'm 18, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there are some of them, I mean, because they're recruited too. So I'm like, maybe not too much older than mm-hmm. me, you know, during the, like maybe early 20s. Right, Yeah. and what is the qualitative differences between kickboxing or Taekwondo and Krav Maga? 
Well, Krav Maga, it's death, right? You learn to use mm-hmm. you know, your hands in a deadly way, how to use a rock, a stick, a stone in a deadly way, how, learn how to kill somebody. So it's a little bit more intense, <laughs> you know? Um, it's more, more for soldiers, right? You know, yeah. in war, in situations of life or death, right? Right, so less about art and more about self-defense and aggressive action Correct. when when required. Exactly. Under yeah. duress. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so how long were you in the IDF then? I was an instructor with the IDF for with that department for about a year. And then I transitioned to work with the police force shortly after that. Uh-huh. And during that time, I mean, were you so you're deployed to train other commandos, mm-hmm. but you weren't sort of deployed as a commando yourself no, on no. secret missions and no, stuff like no. that. I did certain missions with the military, but mm-hmm. not as a commando, right? I couldn't, I didn't have the physical strength to do what they needed to do, right? You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's a very difficult, like, you know, um, uh, like commando soldiers, I'll just give you an example. They go through like almost two years of training and maybe 5% will make it. Mm-hmm. It's that intense. Like some, right. some of those guys will, will crack three hours before they graduate. It's that intense, that's our job to make them feel like nothing and to bring them to their lowest, right? So, I mean, I couldn't have done, you know what I mean? I I was a trainer, but Mm -hmm. to be realistic with you, I couldn't have been a commando soldier by any means. Right, but it seems like you could have been a pretty good spy. I could have been, yeah, Yeah. maybe I was. Maybe you are. Maybe you are right now. Maybe I am. Yeah, no one knows, right? No. I mean, because you don't look typically Israeli and you know you speak English without an accent and all those sorts of things right it's it's interesting that they didn't position you into that i mean that's that's the james bond dream right well i mean you know you can want to be a spy but it's not up to you it's up to them right you know what i mean when you you would seem to be a top candidate they didn't recruit you for that I'm not going to say they didn't recruit me. I went uh-huh. through a series of training. You get but, now. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a lot more going on here. Maybe than, than you're willing to but talk about. But you'll never about. know, right? Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, who knows, right? You can only speculate. Right. But you, okay. So then you transition into this police force, mm-hmm. and is that? I mean, is that? How, what does that look like? Um, in, in terms of like how we think about police in the United States yeah, and North it's, America. It's completely different. I mean, the police and the military work together because you know, the crimes of, of Israel are very different than the crimes mm-hmm. that happen you know, in North America. You know, we have to deal with terrorism. That's our biggest threat, right? So I wasn't exactly in the police force. Um, I was in a unit called the Belush and the Belush is a spying agency, but I did go through like the, the police training, like the academy, like in, again, a more intense, faster, Kind of to get me through there, but I had so much skill from the military that I didn't have to do the you know the the basic mm-hmm. training of the police academy. Right, so it's kind of an anti-terrorism unit. Correct. Yeah. Right, yeah. and and in that context, I mean, what was the day to day like? Like, what are you deployed to do? It depends. Every was every it day, intelligence or was it boots it was, on the ground? It was intelligence, uh, more internal intelligence inside the country. You know. Um, it depends if we were after a terrorist, if we were, at, we we're going into the territories, we, we are disguised a lot, you know, you're very isolated. Mm-hmm. I was positioned in different parts of the country. Um, I didn't, you know, you can't associate or with peop, other people. And, you know, even if like right. say you and I work like together. Like under aliases and yeah, stuff like that? Yeah, exactly. Right, so there's some James Bond in there. Not a bit of James Bond maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and how, how many people were in your unit? Um, in the Belush unit, there was only myself, I was the only woman. And then there was, I think, five other guys. Yeah. 
And can you kind of talk about what a typical mission might look like? Um, I mean, we would do a lot of surveillance, you know, um, if we had to capture someone, like to, to kidnap someone or whatever, you know, to bring him into Israel from the territories, that kind of stuff, you know. Mm. So it's that's pretty heavy. It and is. You're like 19 at this point. I'm young. Yeah, I'm oh 20. My God. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because mind mean, you, too, like to get into the Belush, like that particular unit, you need three to four years of police experience to even be considered, and they recruited me after four months. Mm. So that was a big jump, but that was kind of what I wanted. That was, you know, like I said, you, you don't ask to be a spy. They come after you. So they watch you, they know everything about you. They see mm-hmm. how you are, how you act with other people, um, how much you can take, what your behavior is like when you see certain things. So it's a process. Yeah. So when you watch, you know, spy movies or Hollywood's version of, of you know, what, what kind of international espionage and you know intelligence looks like like how you know based on your experience like what aspects of that are legitimate or look real and what is kind of nonsense compared to you know what you've seen yourself well i mean we don't have flying cars or things like that right sure and, but i mean know, like more grounded kind of lacor uh, well, type you I know. mean, the reality is, is that you see things that most people don't see, you know? I mean, you can be working with somebody today and then tomorrow they're gone, like something. So it's it's dangerous. And I didn't realize what exactly how dangerous it was. till I was like 30 years old, you know, when I actually started feeling scared and a bit paranoid, you mm-hmm. know? Cause you almost have to go in. Cause if you are afraid, even in, in inkling, you know, then you can't do that type of job, right? right? But it's that dangerous, right? You know, of what we're doing and the risk that we're taking. But you don't think that way. You just have a mission and you're expected to do it no matter what it takes. If you're that patriotic and that's what they expect from you. That's why it takes a unique and, you know, personality or person to be able to do that. Just mm-hmm. to put your life on the line going, you know what? I have a mission to do no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. And you did that for like 10 years then? Almost 10 years, yeah. correct. Yeah, um, that's gotta be uh, challenging, right? Especially in terms of like, maintaining relationships with people. There is no relationship. Yeah, with you people, can't yeah. be tied to anybody, no. right? I mean, I'd also be like, you know, like um, I worked with a lot of um, my partners had wives and children. I would be terrified if I had a child because of- It's leverage. The, yeah, the nature of the work, you know, mm-hmm. it's worse when something happens to your loved ones than it happens to you, right? So being single and independent and my family being way, way out there and not having anyone write me letters or even when I was talking with my parents, I wanted to keep it as rare as possible and even to leave the country as, as you know as little as possible. It, for me, just from the experience that I saw, it kept me, it felt, I, I've just felt safer that way. Yeah. Your parents knew what you were doing on some level though. To a degree. I think my mom knew more than my father. Uh-huh. Yeah, what was their perspective? Not great. Well, no. my mom for sure. She was all for it, right? But my father was afraid because he knew people that I mean, when I came back to Canada very briefly, he, we had a private conversation and he just said that you know, he knew people that escaped that kind of work that they mm-hmm. left, you know, because it just, and I guess tried to scare me out of it, but it didn't matter what anyone said. I knew what I was gonna do and I was gonna do it no matter what. Yeah. And did you feel like you were fulfilling that James Bond dream? Um, to a degree, yes, I messed up once, you know, um, I, I think I, I spoke when I shouldn't have. And so, I mean, I was, I was in a process of getting recruited. I'm not saying to, to what organization, you know what I mean? But it was probably the, the, the most elite. The and one that I'm thinking of you, right yeah, now. Yeah, the one that you're thinking uh-huh. of right now. And it was a series of six months. I was going through a series of, of um, 
um, mental and physical tests. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't ask any questions. They just, I just get these notices or, you know, um, or calls. You're going to be at this address at this time in Tel Aviv or in Haifa or in Jerusalem or whatever. You just show up and you don't say anything. You do whatever you're supposed to do. And then you leave. And you don't know if you're going to get a call or not going to get a call. And you don't know why you're being... Dispatch. I mean, you kind of know why, but you just don't know what's happening or what's going to come next. You know, I mean, at one point I had waited a month and then I got another notice, right? You know, so it's it's that kind of process. And then, and then kind of at the end of that, I called my uncle because I wanted to ask him what the heck is going on, right? And that was a mistake. Mm. Your uncle being part of intelligence? I'm perhaps. Okay. <laughs> Right, I'm trying to just understand this. So basically you spoke out of school, you weren't supposed to say anything and just by having a conversation. Oh yeah, I mean, as soon as I, we sat down actually on a table, very similar to this, it was a picnic table outside in a, in a little village called the Fula. And even before I opened my mouth, he just shook his head. And then I said, okay, I just messed up. Mm. And it was very difficult because remember this was my because dream. you should never broach you don't any of this nothing you don't say anybody. anything to anyone right? so you were immediately flagged as a security risk uh, I think so to a yeah. degree like you know can't keep your trap shut you know what I mean uh-huh. but and so but you know you're young and I was so excited and eager and just want to know what was going on and if, if I was going to be recruited and I was willing to do anything so it was a blow it was a hard blow for me. It had to be kind of romantic and exciting, but also terrifying. And I'm just curious about what it would feel like to be, you know, in a situation where you know you're being watched all the time. Like that's gotta feel oppressive. Like knowing everything that you say, everything that you're doing is being observed and analyzed. Well, I mean, I think it's for the security, right? If you go, if you choose to do that kind of work, they have to know, you know, perhaps you're a double agent, who knows? They don't know Mm -hmm. who you are. Like, why would a Canadian girl live live in a great country, come to Israel and wanna do a work like, what the hell? You know what I mean? You've been planted there. Exactly, like what, what, that doesn't make any sense. And that's why I was interviewed maybe 50 times like, you know, what's wrong with you? you so know they're what I mean? suspect. Well, I mean- it, And also you're like the only woman, right? It, yeah, well, I mean, so exactly. So what was that like? <laughs> that was tough, for sure. I had yeah. my challenges. I had to to be even better than everyone else because I was a woman. Because if I had a bad day, it wasn't because I had a bad day, it was because I was a woman, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so you think about that pressure of always being on top of your game, having head, you know, eyes in the back of your head. And, and yeah, it's a lot of pressure. What was your- kind of specific skill set like what was your strength in that capacity um i'm kind of like a chameleon i can be in places not you know be in a place and not be known or seen or whatever and i could good at getting information you know um uh-huh. it's funny cuz i'm not a super social person but if i need to socialize and, and talk to someone in an acting scenario i can do it i'm really good at it right uh-huh. you know so that kind of stuff i mean a lot of times too going into like a good example is going into the territories, right? When you were going into a house and then there's a Muslim woman there, when they see a woman come in, it kind of diffuses the situation. It makes them a little bit more relaxed, right? You know? So mm-hmm. yeah, it was just, it depends. Yeah. I suspect you have great situational awareness. Like you're trained to walk into a room and notice everything and kind of be aware of where everyone's standing and assess everybody's motivations. Yeah. That's a big part of the training yeah. though. Like we you know, I mean, when I was being trained into the Belush, we'd go down like in Khadera or in another village and 
you know, one of the agents would point to different people and, and Muslim, Israeli, Russian, what nationality, you know what I mean? Or like me and you having a conversation and listening to the people behind us, what they're mm-hmm. saying, you know? So kind of being aware. And a lot of times too, when we were in the police car, um, they'd purposely put the radio on really loud because we always have to hear communication. And I'd put it down, they go, no, 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 you have to learn to focus your, your energies mm. in different areas, even being distracted, right? Which is really hard for me. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I blare on the music right now and you and I have a conversation, it's gonna be tough yeah. to focus, right? You know. And what was the physical training like? The physical actually, that actually came easy to me, right? Cause yeah. I was, I mean, I-, I but I'm curious about how that plays into the cycling career, which we're gonna get into in a little right. bit. Right, well, remember I, we didn't talk about this, but in the military, I was actually introduced to the bike um, by a Lieutenant uh, from the commando. He was the national champion in the sport of triathlon. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he knew what I was doing, right? You know, I mean, to a degree, but he always saw me training. Cause when I wasn't training troops, I was training myself, right? You know, through the obstacles um, and what we needed to be good at in the shooting range and whatnot. So he asked me to, and I used to commute to the base on my bike. So he says, you know, let's go for a bike ride. And I really didn't want to, but I felt bad to say no. So we went on a bike ride and I was hooked. I just like fell in love with the bike. Mm. And then he started actually coaching me and he got me into the sport of duathlons, mm. right? And I remember my first duathlon, I was a commando soldier and I remember, you know how I warmed up for it? You know how most people would ride or run? My 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 commander came with um, focus pads and I was punching. You know, like together. shadow yeah. boxing <laughs> shadow to get ready to get for warm. an endurance so, race? Yeah, so I did uh-huh. the duathlon. As soon as I crossed whatever line, he's, you know, I didn't have chance. And he basically threw my bike in the back of the Jeep and we went back to the base. That's how I was able to do races, right? With right. with my security team coming with me. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. 
Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So how did that first race go? It was good. I actually won it. (laughs) You're unbelievable. (laughs) I mean, okay, look, it's Israel, right? You know, I was Uh a big fish in a small pond. I mean, you probably had a janky bike. I had a 20 pound tank, right? Right. With a big hairdryer helmet, you know, back then. And I didn't know what clipless shoes was. I had running shoes on, you know, so. So did some lights go on in that moment? Like, oh, this could be a cool thing for me to pursue? Oh, totally. I, I wanted any opportunity I had for training. I, we went on a bike ride. Like uh-huh. would, and then we, I started to upgrade and learn about the bike. And I, and I actually won my duathons, not was because it wasn't because of the running. I was a good runner, but not a great runner. It was because of the riding. And it just, I just, something that I fell in love with. Yeah. And did you become like national champion in duathlon? Yes, I was, yeah. <laughs> How long between that first race and becoming Israeli national champion in duathlon? Well, remember I couldn't go to all the races because of what I was doing. Right. I had to get special permission, but- Can't do it, I'm undercover or, and parts yeah. unknown. Well, they, they didn't say that, but you know, right. um, when there was like big races, they would give me releases. So on the national championship, that was um, roughly a year later uh-huh. that I was able to win that race. Within so. a year. Yeah, within a wow. year. But then at some point you retire from the police force. Correct. And the sense that I got, you know, I couldn't find a lot of detail on this, but my, the sense that I got was that things were getting crazy dangerous and somebody in your unit was killed, right? And there was quite a looming threat uh, concerning your life. Correct, yeah. I mean, at this point, um, there was, I think, a couple of kidnapping attempts on me. I mean, remember, Israel's a very small country and it's hard to hide me, you know, mm-hmm. especially being the only woman doing what I was doing. Um, and there was a lot of tension at, in the country and at the, t- at the time. And just one incident, you know, I was working the night shift with my partner and we saw a, a police cruiser parked on the side and two officers were sleeping with their kind of hugging their M16s, which you can't do. It's very dangerous in the area that we were in. And we went to the car and we said, you know, what are you doing? But it's a different department. So we basically left and my partner was just yelling at them like, you guys are stupid. 45 minutes later, they were assassinated and all hell break loose in the country. And the next day too, you know, my department gets a picture of me saying that, oh, like threats of, you know, that I was a target. Mm -hmm. So they had to hide me at that point, right? And just knowing that I couldn't go anywhere without being fully armed or, you know, going into my car and checking underneath over whatever, even starting my car was, my heart would start to beat and whatever, you know, is it rigged or, you you know, know so I started to become paranoid and, and afraid. And, and so I said, you know, I need, to transition and honestly, the only thing that really made me feel alive and the only thing I wanted to do at that time was be a pro racer, mm-hmm. you know, um, cause I felt like I was good enough to do it. I was winning races. I was winning races against men. 
But remember, I'm in a very small country, not really knowing yeah. you know, what yeah. real competition is. But time's up in terms of your safety and you got to pull the yeah, escape I, hatch. Well, yeah, they couldn't hide. Where do you think they can hide me, right? You know, right. I mean, I was transferred now into the headquarters to train high officials, like officers and whatnot. But I felt like I was a trainer and that's not what I was, you know, what I had signed up for. Mm-hmm. I wanted to work the field, but, you know, so I basically, to make a long story short, I made a deal with them to work on assignment if needed, you know, outside of the country, which allowed me to come back to North America. And then I could train full-time as a cyclist. Right. So what year was that? Oh my goodness. It would be in the eighties, like, late eighties. Late eighties, right. 80s, and yeah. you're like 30 at the time? I'm 30, yeah. Uh-huh. So you moved back to Canada. Correct, yeah. Right. And you get on the bike. I get on the bike. Right thinking that I got this. <laughs> it was, was it duathlon at the time no, or I, just, I'm gonna be a cyclist? I want to be a pro, to be a pro racer. You want to be a pro cyclist, yeah, pro cyclist, right? So how do you even begin to pursue that? Well, for one, it was a hard transition. You know, you think about the life that I'm just leaving to become a normal, like, you know, citizen, right? You right. Know? So it took a bit of time for that, you know? And you hadn't spent, you know, decades riding your bike around, like no. coming up in the traditional sense. You're no. thirty. You're thirty at this point, yeah. and you're like, I'm going to be a pro cyclist. And people thought I was insane. Like, what the hell? Like, even even the um, like the the president of the National Canadian Cycling Team or the Federation, I should say, right? He says, you know, you're nuts. You're you've missed the boat. You're too old. You can't sprint very well. Your mentality is. I mean, he didn't know me, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and they basically shunned me off. So I had to prove to them, you know, that even though I was 30, which is basically the end of a lot of careers in, in cycling, and here I am wanting to start it, that I, I have this and I can do this sport on a, on a national, international level. So how did you plead your case? I had to go out there and, and show them who I was. And I'm telling you, it was embarrassing because, <laughs> I mean, in the first part of pro racing, I excelled very fast. To, you know, it's got, it's got categories, right? But when you sure. hit the pro level of whatever racing, I mean, I would go into these races and I was relying on my fitness, but cycling is, is very much like a chess game. You have to think three moves before you make your own move. It's not a matter of who's the strongest, it's who's the smartest, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, and I'd go into these races and I'd come in so last that I wouldn't even know where the finish was. I'd see my car in an empty parking lot. Okay, yeah, this must be it. Yeah. You know? So you go from being <laughs> kind of a big fish in a small pond to immediately realizing that the, the, the pond is quite large. Yeah, I'm a shrimp in an ocean yeah. now, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, so how do you bridge that gap? I just, well, at this point, like I'm now 38 years old, right? And I'm, I'm kind of making myself sound worse than what I was, but I was racing for a pro team, a US pro team. And I was at a big race in Redlands, California. And I heard a team director talking about a rider. Remember I'm 38 now, right? And people so are saying, what, but what happened between 30 and 38? I'm struggling. I'm wanting but to be- But you're staying in it. I'm staying in so it because- So for eight, I, eight years, you're, you're trying to I'm, become this pro cyclist you bet. unsuccessfully. Because I never quit anything in my life, right? And I'm <laughs> determined to get there. I mean, I also in contrast to like, hey, listen, every sport I sign up for, I'm the world champion within months. Right. So this is a humbling oh, totally. change of pace. It was completely something I'd never experienced right. before, but a good a good lesson though, right? You know. But in honestly, like I was saying, I was at a race and a team director was talking about a rider. And he basically said, when the road goes up, she drops down, which means he's referring to climbing, right? Mm-hmm. And those five words that I'd never forget, you know, to the day I die is Goldstein, it's my last name, can't climb worse shit. And everyone starts laughing, not just him, but other directors and coaches and other writers and whatnot. And it was at that moment that I said, you know what? I'm gonna show you guys exactly what I can't do, right? You know? And I basically, in that one year, 
I hired a climbing coach. I moved to like from Vancouver to Vernon, which is more hilly, you know, bike friendly location. Mm -hmm. I dropped about 10 pounds and I came back the following season at 38 years old, not only winning hilly races, but setting new records, Mm. you know? So it was that transition that fast, right? At 38 competing against women who are probably 10 years your junior. Oh, wait, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. You need somebody to just follow you around and tell you you can't do stuff. I know, that's what I'm saying. You should pay somebody to it's do the that. Best thing. I love it when people <laughs> say I can't do things. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, wow, I didn't realize there was an eight year period oh, of, definitely. of just yeah. kind of utter humiliation it was, and staying yeah. in it and struggling. But it was, it was a tough go. It was really, really tough. Like and there's are, nothing really romantic about pro cycling at that level. Like it's a grind and it there's is. no money. Especially but in you the were on a team, field. like were you oh, getting yeah. a stipend? Yeah, were you well, able yeah, to support I mean, yourself or did you have a job doing something else? Well, I had, I, I was smart when I was younger, I saved my money and I got into real estate very young. When I came back, when I left Israel, came back uh-huh. to Canada, it was more affordable back then, right? So I started to invest, you know, cause I was, I was a saver. Um, and I was a trainer, you know, I mm-hmm. worked at gyms and stuff, but. So you're training like combat sports, but you're competing on the bike. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's interesting too, just from a physiological perspective, because cycling's all about just dropping as much weight in mm-hmm. the upper body as possible and being as skinny as possible. Exactly. But like I said, though, I mean, it's very much a team sport too, pro mm-hmm. racing, not like ultra endurance racing, right? You know, you know, you have one rider and then you have your team that, you know, they're your domestiques and they're protecting you from the wind. They're getting you food. They're, you know, they're chasing things down, right? So, you know, I had to learn all that. And it's a process. I mm-hmm. think for pro racers, I think many people will agree with me that it takes about five years before you actually start getting good and start learning, you know, what you're good at, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and riding with the national team too, they sent me to Europe, which is night and day compared to North America, like the level of racing, you know? So I came, when I came back from Europe to North America, I mean, my level had jumped twofold, right? right? So, so backtracking a little bit though, at 38, you come back after the off season and you're a completely different rider. Mm-hmm. You're approaching it much more strategically. You've got this climbing coach and you have these breakthroughs. Do, does, I, I presume that then garners the notice of these, these team directors and how do you kind of progress through the ranks at that point? Oh my God, at that point, I mean, I, was, I could have gone to any team. Like, you know what I mean? They're like, what the do you The difference want? was that drastic. It was that drastic. I mean, even doing it as a one woman team and showing them what I could do, right? But I don't know if you know that when I reached the peak kind of at that point where opportunities were handed to me, I had the mother of all crashes in Cascade and, mm-hmm. you know, where I wanted to kind of to prove myself on a more international field where there were, you know, um, teams from the Ukraine and Russia and, what, and you know, Kirsten, Arm, Kristen Armstrong from the United States was there. And so I wanted to see if I could really climb against the best, you know, riders in the world. And so I went to that particular race and on, I knew on the first, that first stage, there was a long climb that they would take off and they took off and I could, I was the only rider in that Peloton, whatever that could hold that kind of, you know, that um, really fast pace up the climb. But then, you know, you start descending and on those bikes, you can go very fast, almost up to, you know, what is it? hundred kilometers an mm-hmm. hour, no, 80 miles an hour. And as we're descending, other riders are starting to come up and we're, and I'm seeing like 85, 86. And then there's a, a rider kind of coming on my left-hand side and you know, there's a center line rule and she kind of leans into me and at 80 kilometers an hour, I land on my face. So I basically lips off, instant facelift. Right, your whole face peeled off. Uh, yeah, I mean, I broke 
almost 20 bones in my body. My, the, the friction of the fall burned off the first layer of skin. It was a nightmare. I mean, I shouldn't be sitting here today based on that crash, right? Yeah. You know? So that was 2005, right? Mm-hmm. Prior to that, you had gone on this like tear winning a bunch of races, mm-hmm. right? Like between, I mean, you won like nine out of 11 races leading up to that Cascade Classic. Mm-hmm. So you were in a pretty great position in terms of, of you know, really making a stamp on the pro circuit. Oh, absolutely. Although you'd had another, you were, you were in a position to make the 2004 Olympic team, but you had another crash, Correct. right? That kind of took you out of contention for that. Yeah. And I, then yeah. you come back from that, mm-hmm. you don't make the Olympic team because of that crash, mm-hmm. but the Cascade Classic is really gonna be this moment to shine. Well, the Cascade Classic was kind of, I mean, it was gonna be after that race that I was gonna make my decision of, okay, where am I gonna, like my breakthrough kind of riding, you know, mm-hmm. career, but, being in that position, I mean, they basically told me that my, your career is over. You know, your ability to walk properly without a walker or a cane will be very limited. And then 100% you won't be back on your bike again. And that's what I was left with as I was lying there and, you know, in the trauma unit. Right. So, so I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, like Velo, Velo News dubbed this crash like the most epic crash of all time. Correct. At that time, right. correct. Yes. Is it on film? The crash? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I don't think they filmed the, I mean, there was, they did articles on it, right? I mean, we have pictures of the after a surgery stuff, right. right? There was big write-ups on it, but I don't think it was filmed, no. Yeah, so you went down it at like somewhere between 60 and 80 miles an hour. Correct, yeah. On a descent. Mm-hmm. With everybody else falling on All top of teeth, me. All your teeth, your lips. Yeah, I mean, arm you can't tell looking, did you have to have like a lot of plastic surgery? Oh yeah, I had lots yeah. of surgery done around. I mean, I'm still kind of numb on, on my right side here, you know, mm-hmm. um, there is a difference. If you look at my younger pictures, my face to what it is now, there is, I mean, it's, you know, there is a little, a little bit, bit of a difference. Right, yeah. um, skin shorn off yeah. your torso. Yeah. And you were told that you might not walk properly again. Correct, I mean, I broke my, both my ischium was shattered my hips were broken, my arms, you know, I mean, fingers and toes busted, right? I was, it's like taking a pretzel and basically stepping on it, right? You know, mm-hmm. and I can't even explain to you the worst pain I'd ever been through. Everything hurt all the time, breathing, blinking, people opening and closing the door, the wind from that, right? You know, it was, it was a tough go. Wow, how long were you in the hospital? I, well, they couldn't move me out of the United States for I think four weeks. And then they transferred me to, cause I had to be airlifted from the crash to mm-hmm. St. Charles in Bend, Oregon. And then my sister came to pick me up cause I couldn't, you know, I, it was gonna right. take a, be a process to drive me back to Canada. Cause also getting expensive cause medical is expensive here, right? Sure. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, okay, so months in the hospital. Yes. But you have the gift of these doctors telling you you're not gonna walk again, let mm-hmm. alone get on a bike and mm-hmm. ever race again, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what do you do with that information? You, can, you, know, what, you, you know what I said to them in my yeah. head. I won't say it on right. air. <laughs> Gosh, show uh, you. I mean, how do you begin the rehab process? Well, listen, the only thing I could do was contract my abs. That was the only physical thing I could do, right? But I basically made a promise to myself and I said, I don't care how long it takes or you know, the kind of pain mm-hmm. I'm gonna go through. I'm gonna get back on the bike. I'm gonna race again. And I'm gonna come back even stronger than I did before all this happened, right? You know. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we, you know, it happens to a lot of people when you're faced with this overwhelming situations, you don't know what to do. So you kind of buckle, right, you know? So I knew I had a lot of work cut out for me, but I think everything is upstairs. It's what you believe in and what you make your body believe that you can do, right, you know? Because honestly, if I believed everything that I was told, even growing up, then I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Right. right? You know? But 
you know, we all have our breaking points too. You we know, do. but your ability to kind of compartmentalize all of that and well, just focus on, okay, I can do this. Like how much of your military training comes into play in terms of having the mental rigor to just block out, you know, the fear and focus on the task at hand. Well, I think the military has a lot to do with it because it, it was part of their job, even during my, you know, military training to crack us mentally as best as they can, right? You know, you know, because mental strength is much more powerful than physical mm-hmm. strength. We all know that, you know. Um, but for me, like at that point, going back to the hospital, I mean, how can they say something like that? I haven't even started my rehab, you know what I mean? Just to make that kind of prediction that fast, right? You know, and I think that's the thing is that we're so quick to take, you know, the easy way out, right? You know, without being more optimistic of the things that we possibly can do, you know, and the possibilities of just going after the things that you believe in, right? You know, cause sometimes you're not gonna get support from other people. You're gonna have to believe in yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is we're so influenced by other sources. But for me, I never was, never has been, and never will be. You know, what I wanna do and what I'm determined to do, I'll make it happen. I'll find a way to make it happen. Right. So make it happen, you did. Like how long was the rehabilitation before you could get back on a bike? I was back on my bike race ready in less than a season. So like- Eight months. Eight months, wow, wow. And I was really skinny because I had my, um, <laughs> my lips had to be sewn back on so I couldn't eat anything, right? Oh, I wasn't wow. too, so I was climbing like a fiend, right? You know? Yeah, so <laughs> how long before you could walk properly? Like take me through the stages. Well, I of- mean, okay, well, it was, t- it was tough. I mean, I had a lot of rehab on my own. I was in a wheelchair, you know? So mm-hmm. I remember asking my mom to drop me off at like a running track. And I had one arm that I, in, in my ankle, my, um, my left ankle, which I can't move very well, but, and so I just wheel around the track as much as I can. And then I'd start using more, but mobility- In the wheelchair. Yeah, in a wheelchair. But mobility was really important is getting those muscles strong again. And it hurt like a son of a gun, right? You know, but every day, you know, I was better than the day before and just staying positive. And honestly, it, I swear to God, being in that positive mode, I could feel things starting to bind. Cause when I went to get re-X-rayed at the general hospital in Vancouver, a couple of months later, they were floored at how fast I was recovering, mm. you know? And you attribute that to just being in motion. And- I think motion and mentally, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And just determined that I am gonna get out of this. Yeah. So from the wheelchair, then like, how do you, I mean, are you walking with a limp? Like how is- Oh yeah, no, it goes from wheelchair to a one crutch, you know what I mean? Bopping away. And then, I mean, even, it was even wheelchair to wheeling to my trainer, which was on a, you know, my, on a bike, whatever. Um, And it took me like 40 minutes just to get from the wheelchair, just to sit and be comfortable on the bike because it was the flashbacks. Yeah. that was, was haunting me and that was kind of delaying my process, right, you know? Yeah, when you say you were race ready or back on the bike and ready to race eight months later, that doesn't account for the kind of mental trauma of the recurring like imagery of like crashing at absolutely. that kind of speed, right? Yeah. And pro cycling, you have to be absolutely fearless. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, how do you yeah. ever descend aggressively again after that experience? Far like, how away could from you the ever Peloton. overcome that? <laughs> yeah, like there's no way because the edge that you have to ride yeah. in order to be competitive at the elite level is yeah. is to really embrace that fearlessness. Right, and that's funny because that's why a lot of the races I did, I tried to get into breakaways where I wasn't with like early right, or just, before. Yeah, just right off the front yeah, at the or, beginning. Or on the climbs, yeah. just take off. So I don't have to descend with anyone. That, right? that might work like one out of every 20 <laughs> right. races, right? But most of the time, you, then you end up getting, you know, 
completely destroyed. Yeah, I mean, uh, for sure. I mean, that was the hardest thing. I mean, with the, you know, ascending, climbing was easy for me, right? It was the descending that was really, I mean, I'd be breaking all the time and, you know, my climbing coach that I hired earlier to, you know, make me this great climber, he was now coaching me to descend without being, you know, without having mm. this fear because, you know, you can't race having that kind of fear. Right. And there is a risk. You beca- right? and, and with that fear, you become a hazard to the other riders. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but mind you too, I mean, I was kind of like, when we were descending, I would kind of veer off to the side a little bit more, gave myself more space, you know, try to Mm -hmm. stay to the front as much as possible. And I realized too, like after that crash, I mean, I had great years the next three years after, but I couldn't afford to crash because, you know, um, I think two years after that, I was hit by the car in Redlands, right? Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah, it was um, was actually one of my, close to my last year of racing in a criterium was a Redland stage race. And, you know, we were warming up for the crit and I was mm-hmm. coming back to the team car and this lady in a Hyundai who was texting, she was going like 80 kilometers an hour, 50 miles an hour or whatever. And she hits me from the rear of the bike and ejected me off my bike. And I landed like Superman onto the pavement and snapped both my hands. I had two compound fractures, <sighs> you know, and I go, oh shit, here we go again. <laughs> you know what I mean? so, so what are you like, and at I this had, point, 40 something? I'm now 40, 42, yeah. Uh-huh. And so I, I had retired that. I said, mm. I can't do this anymore. Were you the right. oldest rider on the Peloton? No, 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 Jeannie Longo, longer, mm. you know, most decorated athlete, right? Mm. You know, she was older. Um, Linda Jackson was in there too. So there was more. I mean, I think women push the envelope a little bit more than the men, you know, with, um, with, with racing. Mm-hmm. So, but I was, I mean, I, I had planned to kind of transition into ultra endurance racing during that time, but that was just, yeah, that accident was- Because no crazy descents. I know I have the mental fortitude for something like this. I don't crack easily. Right. Like this could be something to pursue. While you're racing, you're starting to think about that. Well, I mean, I think the the reality is, is that I had crashed. I mean, it's not, you know, that's not the only crash you have. When you're right. a pro racer, you crash multiple times. I broke my back in France when I was there, right? You know, and um, multiple crashes where I cracked my helmet, right? I mean, I think to- the safety of me, like, I mean, there's life after cycling, right? You know, and I just, it just felt like a right time to transition because mm-hmm. I really wanted to do ultra endurance racing, which is a lot safer in that in re- that regards, right? Yeah. You know, and so it just, I didn't make it there without that last Right, so crash. after that <laughs> that crash or where the car hit you mm-hmm. in, in Redlands, that was like the final moment, like I'm done. Correct, yes. Done, done being a pro racer. Yeah. Uh, so what happens? You go back to Canada and start to hatch some plan to become. Uh, well, the plan was race across America. I mean, uh-huh. I remember watching that and saying, "Okay, I'm going to do that before I retire completely from cycling." Right? You know, because the goal was. I mean, I just felt like I would, I would be more gifted. I was more gifted for ultra endurance racing mm-hmm. based on my ability to ignore pain, push myself beyond my limits, and to be functional with very little sleep. Right. right, that's military training. Yeah, right? yeah. Walk me through the military training around sleep deprivation because oh this goodness. is like a superpower that you have. Yeah. Well, I and mean, I'm, always, I, I'm sort of of the mind that you can develop mental fortitude around it, but it's also not something you can. Can you truly train it? Like, in my experience, because I've tried to practice it, mm-hmm. and then when you get to the event and you need to rely on it, it doesn't really work. Yeah. Like practicing it doesn't make it any easier. No, I think (laughs) from what I understand that either you have it or you don't, Uh that you can't, there's something you can't train. I don't know, that's based on research. There are some people who are just constitutionally wired to be like, when you hear these legendary stories of some of the Ram racers over the years, like Yuri Robick and all these people who could literally just sleep an hour a night and Mm -hmm. seem to 
churn it out, no problemo. It's not no problemo, but it comes with challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Like you hallucinate really bad and stuff, right? You know, um, but yeah, your body, you know, you just become like a potato. You don't know what's real, what's not real. Like a lot of time with sleep deprivation during Race Across America, I didn't know what I was doing on the bike, right? Because mm-hmm. I too, we too right. cut my sleep to 90 minutes. But you had right? experience with that. Like I in military training, yeah. they're, they're probably waking you up in the middle of the night all the time. Oh, you're not even, they're not even waking up, you're yeah. awake, you know? There's no one waking you up, yeah. you know? I mean- But it, mind, there's a lot of mind games yeah, in totally. the training, right? Oh yeah, I yeah. mean, I remember once training, we had a really hard trek, it was through the night, right? We finished the trek after I think nine or 10 hours, we come back to our base, our barracks or whatever. The commander says, okay, you guys can rest, we'll give you four hours and then we're back at it, right? So we're, oh, thank God. And I'm thinking, you know what? This is too good to be true. Yeah, he, you, if he says that, you you yeah. know that's and not so gonna be there. And so she leaves. <laughs> and then uh, 30 yeah. seconds later, another guy comes in, opens uh-huh. the lights, he gets your stuff back on, we're heading back out again. Right. So that's the kind of stuff that they, you know what I mean? And people yeah. are crying and that's screaming. That's very and, instructive for ultra endurance. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it was, that was, I mean, if something sounds too good to be true, you know, it's not gonna happen, right? right? Yeah. So you're going into this idea around RAM with a very specific set of skills. I mean, there are other, like some of these Eastern European guys who've raced RAM, I think are all are military officers, right? Correct. Some of the some of the great guys over the years. So it's not a new thing that somebody with your discipline and background would be interested in this. But you are coming into it with this pro pro cycling career plus the military training. I mean, you're positioned well for it. I'm positioned well mentally for it, absolutely. Uh-huh. Right. You know, I mean, I think that has a lot the benefits of that, right? But even in pro racing, I mean, always better in longer races. I got stronger later. Um, Again, I could stay awake, you know? Um, And so I just thought things that were extended and longer and my ability to recover really fast too was another Mm -hmm. asset that I had. So I just felt like it was more suited for me again, ultra endurance racing. Yeah. So the first time you do, you've done Ram three times, Mm -hmm. right? So what was the the first year was, 2011? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, so talk to me about how you transitioned your training to prepare for that. Well, it's I mean, it's a very different thing. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't hire a coach or uh-huh. whatever. So I just knew I had to stay on my bike and ride it nonstop, you know? And so what I did is I just self-trained and, and even my crew, not, n- none of us did it before. We didn't know what we were getting into, right? So I would train multiple, like at three in the morning or six in the morning or 12 at night. So, you know, just to train my body. And I thought I knew I was doing, and I basically come to the line. At that point, I thought in the best shape of my life, right? But Race Across America is a different animal. Like it's something you can't, it's really hard to describe in words, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because remember you have 12 days to get your butt across the country. So, you know, a lot of things happen during that time. It's not a matter of if, but when, you know, you have back, neck, knee, constipation, diarrhea, swelling, and you have to have a crew that knows what they're doing navigational wise, mm-hmm. keeping you safe, you know, knowing the terrain, knowing when there's a bike change. Um, so, you know, we kind of went in there completely green. Yeah, we should probably explain for people that are listening or watching uh-huh. who don't know what RAM is. RAM is a cycling race that began like 40 years ago, 39, yeah, 39 years, years, ago, years ago, correct. Um, yeah. that entails riding your bike across the country mm-hmm. on a pre-designated route. You begin in Oceanside, California, you end up in Annapolis. Annapolis. Yep. Is it the same route every year? Do they ever switch it up at now all? No, it has the last, they, they do switch up. Like the first mm-hmm. Ram was, I started up north more, you know, went through a different terrain, but mm-hmm. a little bit shorter, less climbing. But the last, I'm gonna say 10 years, it's been the Annapolis. The same, yeah. the same route, Correct. right? And yeah. you can do, there's a solo division where people like yourselves mm-hmm. just do it the way they wanna do it. And then there are relay divisions. Correct. 
which is different. And that's super interesting too. And in the way that the relays decide how to configure um, their rotation, you Correct. know, whether they're gonna do six hour shifts or 30 minute shifts, it's super fascinating. Right. But in any event, the idea is you ride your bike across the country and you can sleep as much as you want or you can sleep not at all. It's completely up to you. You're supported by a crew that follows you, that supports you, that feeds you. And that's gotta be an unbelievably rigorous job. Um, and there are legendary stories of people who have attempted this, who have succeeded at doing this. And they are tales of woe and tears and hallucinations and cry. I mean, like the drama is unbelievable, yeah. Oh yeah, right? Oh, even with, and don't forget to you got 12 days to do it. So mm-hmm. when you say you can sleep as much as you want, not necessarily, right? right. Because if you sleep as much as you want. 12 days ain't that much. Yeah, I mean, in a 48 hour period, it's either zero to three hours, but most people every like, you always go through the first night. So you're gonna ride about the first 40 hours nonstop. Mm-hmm. And then you'll go into your sleep cycle of right. every 24 hours from like 90 minutes to three hours, I'm gonna say is usually the, yeah. the time. And your, your sleep schedule evolved through the experience of these three races before you kind of figured out what works best for you. Yeah, I mean, you learn something. All, I mean, I, that was a total learning curve the first time, right? You know, also I got the condition of Shermer's neck. Yeah, I wanna days. talk about it. We're gonna spend a lot of time talking okay. about that. <laughs> so it was even more of a yeah. challenge. So that's the thing, like mm-hmm. the neck gives out mm-hmm. because you can't hold your eight to 10 pound head up mm-hmm. in that position for, that amount of time without it giving out and people's necks just can't sustain their heads and their heads end up resting on their hands, basically on the handlebars and it becomes very perilous. I mean, yeah, I mean, I didn't even know what Shermer's neck was. I mean, uh, when we started Race Across America in 2011, I mean, I basically started the race like a jackass. I went out there like a bat out of hell, riding like I was a pro racer, Mm -hmm. right? And I was good for three days. Just blasted off through through the desert in California. Yeah, and on day like two and a half, I thought, okay, I was on record breaking pace. Like, okay, I can sustain, this is hard, but everything's good. But then eventually, and Shermer's neck happens, not like a slow onset, it's a, it's fast, right? Mm. Then all of a sudden I was having a hard time like keeping my head up, right? Cause then our, you know, our, our neck isn't positioned, you know, or, or uh, built to hold our you know, head up. It's, it's there to support it, right? You know, not to hold it, right? So um, I couldn't turn my head anymore. And then all of a sudden within three hours of the first pain that kind of shot down my back into my buttocks area, my head completely drops. So my chin is now resting on my chest. You can't lift your head. I cannot, I cannot turn it. How many it. days in were you? Two and a half days. Mm. To, like, you know, and so in order to ride the bike now, like you said, I'm, you know, holding my head, you know, my chin under the palm of my hand, the other arm is steering, braking and trying to control the bike, right? And so, you know, my crew members are saying, oh my God, you know, we're not even a quarter of the way into the race. We're gonna have to pull out, you know, you can't ride across the country. And I remember saying, you know what? I've never quit anything in my life. I don't care if I have to crawl across, come up with something, you know, we're gonna make it across. Mm-hmm. So. So my crew is creative, right? They're really creative. They came up with different apparatuses. You know, one was like a PVC pipe thing, yeah. or whatever, with a sling underneath. I've seen lots of videos of that. You, right. you have this PVC pipe going down your mm-hmm. back and then you literally like tape it to your forehead, Correct. right? You yeah. look like you just got out of the spinal ward, yeah, you know, exactly. at the hospital, like it's yeah. insane. Yeah, but that's, but none of those, uh, another one was a big, like an arm coming off your handlebars, kind of like a, that you can rest your chin on, right? right. Um, that seems dangerous. Yeah, so, but what worked for me that I still use in all my rams, it's gonna sound kind of crazy. So in every ram, I basically shave my hair from year to year. 
That's why right. my hair is a little bit short here. And then with the remainder of hair that's on the top of my head, my crew chief will take tensor bandage. She'll French braid it into three sections on the top of my head. She'll pull my head back and she'll tie it to the back of my heart rate monitor. Uh-huh. So kind of like a bobble, we have whatever. Right, like you in, in the later races, you actually wove cloth into those braids, right? Yes. So you could pull it down. Correct, yeah. And then you anchor it to your heart rate monitor yes. strap on the back. Yep, yep. But that strap is, I mean, that strap would have to be pretty tight, right? It's, it's pretty tight, yeah. right? But I start with that now too, right? I don't wait till it gets really bad because I think they said that Schumer's neck's really prone to people who have suffered from whiplash or injury crashes. So, mm-hmm. and it's usually with men, not, not a lot of women. Yeah, from I think the crashes that I've had in the past. And yeah, that's how I got across the country. I mean, right. it was, I'm gonna tell you, it was the worst pain I'd ever suffered through because your muscles are so tight and it's so tense. I mean, we had to rotate a leave Tylenol and Advil just to control the pain. And I'd be throwing up off the side of the bike because oh of the pain. God. It was terrible. But then with the, with, the, with the weird contraption that you have, doesn't uh-huh. it feel like your hair is getting pulled out of your head the Absolutely. whole time? Absolutely, it feels like, you, like I'll tell you to go run, yeah. I'll grab you by the hair, but you keep running, right? You right. Know? That's what it feels like. But I mean, what else are you gonna do? Nothing else worked, right? And uh-huh. otherwise I can't see the road. You know, so right. that, <laughs> that's either I get so, my hair pulled right. or, you know, I crash. So 2011, you you figure it out and you finish it. Yeah. But that was really just an education in what this experience was all about. Right. I mean, I'm still able to, I want to, I was still won the race, you know, I mean, it, it right. didn't set any records or anything. Um, and then I- You won the women's female division. Correct, yes. Mm, and then solo. at that point I was, done living out of my bags as a, you know, I was pro racing for so many years mm-hmm. and then Ram was kind of, then I was just ready to take a break. So I actually- How dare you? Yeah, I know, I know. So you I You've been taking a break your whole life. <laughs> I know, just from- You're yeah. like 40, what are you, 42, 43 at this point? Uh, 40, well, 2011, yeah, you're probably 41. 40, 43, 42, uh-huh. yeah, 42. And so then I just wanted to, I just needed a mental break, whatever. And, and so then I, I ended up writing the book and started speaking, and mm-hmm. I, but I didn't like not do anything. I started doing duathlons and marathons because I'm always going to keep active and fit. Right. it's important, right? You know. Um, and then and are you making a living in real estate? Like, how do you yeah, pay the bills? I, I bought. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. That I yeah. bought. I bought properties young when I was young, and I right, was able to it. own a lot of properties. That's nice. So that's that, good for the training lifestyle. Me. Oh, for sure. To have yeah. that that freedom to do whatever you want was important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, st- I started doing, um, I was with the Canadian Speaking Bureau. So I started doing presentations mm-hmm. um, and just doing other things. But then I, the itch to come back to Ram and to to ride it better, because I think the first time you do it, it's a learning experience. And I was just determined to go after the 10 day record, right? right. You know, it was just something that, but I think I just took a little bit too much time off. I took almost seven years off the bike. And then uh-huh. I went back into, into ultra endurance racing. Right, so the next Ram was, 2019, Correct. 18? Yeah, it was on my 50th birthday. I said, I'm right. gonna give myself a present. 50th birthday. <laughs> yeah. And you had this experience, you know, under your belt. Like, so how do you, how does that change how you prepare for the second attempt? It was hard because a lot of time had gone by, right? You know what I mean? And I think to be out of the loop for that long, but I wanted to do- And there's do, a big difference between 50 and 42 yes, or 41. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree, right? So. So what I wanted to do is prove to myself that I could still ride my bike. So I went into Silver State 508, the one in Nevada. Um, And I kind of crammed in training and I ended up setting a new woman's record. And I said, okay, I can still ride my bike, right? But I think the prep going into the 2019 Ram, I I a little bit overtrained, I a little bit overdid it. I was too excited and 
Um, yeah, so I think we we came in there. I came in there a little bit cooked, you know. Um, but you broke the women's record by like twelve hours. No, 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 oh, no. You didn't? No, not in no, not in that race. Not no, in that race. No, because actually, the, I read that wrong. Then the, yeah, the twenty ninth. No, no, that I was read raw. In like, that was raw. The okay. first raw. Okay. In twenty twelve, right? But in the twenty nineteen race, though, it was the hardest women's field the race had ever had. There was mm. there was I think six Ram champions in there, right? You know, so it was it was a race, like right from the beginning, right to the end, right? Yeah. And you know, so Issa and Alexandro, who's are in the younger group category from um, I believe Sweden and Austria, were the favorites favorite to wins. But it ended up to be Daniela and I with them like 24 hours back, right? Yeah. So, but a lot of things happened, you know? And so again, I think we had issues with navigational stuff, you know, and I ended up losing by 90 minutes. And that's why I had decided that I'm coming back 90 again, minutes. 90 minutes. Yeah. After all of that. I know. And what you were 11 plus days or something like that no, on that no, one? No, no, 10 days. 10 days? 10 days, yeah, 19 yeah. hours, yeah. And the record is like seven plus. No, that's for the men's. For the, I know, for yeah, the men. Yeah, right. the, like the fastest time ever recorded. The fastest time on that course, okay, not on the course that was shorter, on that course is 10 days. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is 10 days. For men and women. No, for women. Okay, for women. And and for, I believe, but for men, like who's the fastest you've ever done I believe Strausser of seven days. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. he has for that, yeah. So, cause so there's two crazy. different courses, right? There's a shorter course of Shanna Hogan holds that record, but they go based on average speed, mm-hmm. right? You know, but we're talking about just the course, but for that course, it's Nicole Reese from Sweden. She, ha- or sorry, from Austria. She has the course record of 10 days. Right. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. To make it across on that course in 11 days, you're just for people that are listening, like you have to be averaging at least like 12 miles an hour, including sleep for the whole thing, right? Pretty close, yeah. 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 So that provides a little context. Right, right. Oh yeah. Wow. So so 2019, you reestablish yourself, but also like a sense of unfinished business. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was determined. This cannot stand. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Leia. I said, <laughs> I just had to come back, yeah. right? I mean, I wrote down everything that uh-huh. the mistakes that we made, the mistakes that I made, the what things that I could What mistakes did you prove. make? Well, for me, I was overcooked. I mean, I think I focused way too much on climbing. I mean, Ram has got a lot of climbing, but there's a lot of flats going through mm-hmm. Kansas and Illinois and whatnot, right? You know, to work more on power, we had to get a better navigational system because I think we probably had about two and a half to almost three hours of navigational error, mm. which hurt us quite badly, you know. Um, like going off course, you mm-hmm. mean? Correct, yeah. And wow. when you go off course, you know, you have to jump back in the car, go back to a place where you made a mistake and then start from there, mm. right? So on day six, we messed up four times, right? You know, and so, there, I mean- And you have the same crew though. You have the same crew, yeah. But I, mean, I mean, the same crew that you had in 2011? Um, a little bit changes here and there, like, you know, a few people, 
you know, but right. but when there was there were so many detours too because of the, the the floods in the Mississippi, you know what I mean? And that we got notification a little bit later. But you know what? That's the nature of the race. It's Ram. It's mm-hmm. three thousand miles. You're gonna There's mess always up. Gonna be some crazy you just stuff. wanna catch it really fast, right? Yeah. Um so we worked on the navigational issue part for this, like for the Ram, you know, twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two, sorry. Um yeah, and then again, I came in way better, but don't forget we had the COVID year, right? Yeah. Where Ram, where I was, we were all set to go. And then we got notification in April that the race was canceled, but I continued to train like I was racing because I knew the benefits would lead me into mm-hmm. to this year. To so. use that as a benefit. Sorry? The idea that the race got canceled rather than looking at that as a setback, like, oh, I have a whole nother year to train. Bet. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. I even came back. Even I could even do more to up my my training even mm-hmm. more, you know, the next the following year, right? Yeah. But yeah, sustaining power on the flats is like seems to be a key to success. Like because there are so many flats, I think in cycling, you know, climbing gets a lot of attention. People can climb mm-hmm. well, but it's actually really hard to sustain like threshold power on flats for a long period of time. Absolutely. Like the level of pain that goes into that oh my God, absolutely. exceeds often like what it's required to, you know, attack a climb. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for sure. I mean, but even with climbing, you know, you uh, like my crew chief always says, the only time you're gonna feel good in RAM is the first few days. After uh-huh. that, you're, you're running off fumes, right? You know, it's, it's mental. So you're not climbing like you're gonna climb on a timed whatever, but to, to hold that sustained power, like you said, on the flats, especially, mm-hmm. you know, when you're in Kansas and you have a headwind for 19 hours, you know, that's more difficult than climbing, you know, Wolf Creek Pass or whatever in Colorado, that's 10,000 feet. So you really have to balance what you're gonna do and you can't neglect any element, you know, where I was only focusing on climbing in the 2011 or 2019. Mm-hmm. But this time I really balanced it out between the two. So it was much more powerful on the flats and also p- bike positioning, you know, being aero is one thing, it's great. But if you're uncomfortable after like no, staying in that aero position- comfort is way more important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I worked on a, a better, you know, uh, a Rob Rob Wright, he set me up how a, a ram rider should feel, you know, which is more upright, more upright. Less, less pressure on your wrists, absolutely, right? and your Absol- shoulders. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that has to be key, getting that right, and oh, also absolutely. finding the right saddle because you're going to get saddle sores no matter what. Absolutely. Oh, you bet. There's no way around. How many it. saddles did you test before you found one that was? I just suitable? use the, my one particular saddle that just works for me. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what saddle. It's it's just comfortable. But you know, a saddle sore is a pressure point and you're sitting on that pressure point for so long that you're gonna get it no matter what. But I think, you know, trying to prevent it from progressing too much. So mm-hmm. sitting in Epsom salts really fast, changing shorts as much as possible. And then in worst case scenario, you know, you have the lidocaine, right? You right. know, you just numb it all up. Numb it up, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh God, it's the worst. <laughs> it is, but you have to do what you have to do. <laughs> yeah, and it's that thing where, it's the tiny things that fell the journey, right? It's the little tiny, like, oh, I have this little boil, you know? Oh, but then it's oh like, it becomes your whole universe. It's on your it, mind. It capsizes <laughs> the whole thing, totally, right? Totally, the tiniest little thing, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, what is the sleep deprivation aspect aside? Like, how do you prepare mentally? And like, what are the mantras that you repeat or what is going on in your mind when you're, you know, living in that pain for such an extended period of time? Like, are you 
telling yourself stories? Are you just focused on your heart rate? Like what is going on in your head? I'm focused on a, a number of things, but speed is a big thing. But again, it all it all depends on wind and you know terrain, mm-hmm. if you're descending, if you're climbing. I think too, but somebody asked me that question before too, is like, you know, when you are that that uncomfortable, but I think, you know, my mentors, you have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's RAM, right? You know? And a lot of times when we are in pain, we focus on that pain. That's all we're thinking about. So I try to kind of park it and not focus on that pain, you know? I know it sounds kind of strange, but it works for me, you know? And and thinking about the task in hand, like what am I what, what have I done to get here? The training that I've gone through. Mm-hmm. And you want to get to that damn finish line, right? So stop dwelling on the things that hurt you and let's focus on what you need to do to get to your finish line. Mm-hmm. And I think that really worked for me, you know? Um and just yeah, I think preparing in the right way and knowing what I was doing prior to is is a big part of you know of 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 completing RAM in in the, within the twelve days. Yeah, you said you've never quit anything, but I suspect there have been moments of weakness where you were on the precipice of quitting. Like, how do you talk yourself off the ledge in those situations? Easy. Or you just, or you just don't you, you don't even get there. <laughs> no, of course. I mean, yeah. I know the only thing I have to think about is how I'll regret it and I'll just dwell on it for the rest right. of my life. But you know. it's like, you've, you've held that line. Like it, I've never quit anything, so I'm not gonna start now. You like, know, patterns there's are repeated. No, there's no fissures in that, that wall. Yeah, no, I, to me, quitting should never be an option unless it's life-threatening, of course. You know, that's my mantra, right? I've, you know, it, but I don't But what if think, you're, I mean, there has, there's situations in your life, I'm sure, where you were pursuing something and, you realize like, well, this is not for me or this is not right. Like, it's not really quitting, it's sort of changing directions, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think people sometimes stay in things too long. They probably should quit stuff sooner Correct. and try something else. Yeah, that's different. So though, how I do you think. differentiate? I mean, I think whatever you choose to do, you have to love it. You know, I, I think people like you were saying who, who go to a job, they wake up in the morning and they hate what they're doing, right? I mean, I find that sad. And I think mm-hmm. life is too short. I mean, that happened to me in Israel. My dream was to be, a Belush agent and you know, to work for intelligence till I was gonna retire. Like, you know, 45, you have a great pension in Israel, right? That was my dream. But, you know, I think, you know, having a purpose to what I was doing and, and loving what I was I was doing was more important for me than the ego of that job. Mm-hmm. And I think whatever you choose do choose to do, that you love it, that when you wake up in the morning, you have a motivation and a desire. Cause life's too short. I mean, this is a one-time deal. This is our life. Let's make the best of it. And so that kind of is my mantra, you know, forever, right? That's right. What, that's how I, I live my life. Right, but when you're on, you know, hour forty-five without sleep, and you forget where you are, and you're not sure what you're doing or what your feet are doing, like, how do you maintain that focus? Like, are there tactics or strategies that you deploy to, you know, bring yourself back into your body and remind yourself why you're doing it? Like, what does that look like? Okay, so some, like, when we talk about RAM, sometimes at that point, it's up to the crew to say, you know what, you need. 30 minutes off the bike. Mm-hmm. When you're not moving and you're delirious and it can be dangerous where like, I mean, at one point I was hallucinating so bad that a panther had jumped in front of me that I veered over to the other side of the uh-huh. road. So in that case, my crew is gonna stop me. That's why it's very important. They're, they're behind me all the time and mm-hmm. I'm radioed to them. And they'll say, you know, you need 30 minutes. So your crew is your lifeline, they're your brain because you become like a puppet, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why you have good communication before the race of what's gonna, you know, what's gonna transpire if you can no longer, long, no longer make those rational decisions, right? You know, right. but you know, we all know what, what I'm there for. And of course, if it was life-threatening or dangerous, my crew would pull me, but mm-hmm. you know, it would, that's the only way that they would ever pull me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, if I- right. 
if it wasn't safe. Right, right. Yeah. On the Shermer's neck thing, you trained for the most recent RAM by wearing a weighted helmet, Correct. right? Yes. To try to strengthen those neck muscles. I did intense um, strength exercises with my, not only that, it's like, you know, those, that, that um, it's like a harness you wear over your head and uh-huh. it's got weighted plates. Right. I do a lot of like reps out oh, like, that. like that. Yeah, right. like those uh-huh. kind of reps. And always, always when I'm on the trainer, I always have a one pound helmet on. You'll see, I have three little plates on top of my helmet. Mm-hmm. And when I ride, I have one little plate. So I have different weights, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I always have some kind of load on my head. So when I wear the helmet, it feels like nothing. Right. And that does help. It's not a complete cure, but it does it does make your next right. uh, next neck a little bit stronger for Still sure. Still gotta shave the head and pull Still that gotta thing. shave the head, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So going into the twenty twenty one RAM, mm-hmm. what was the what was the goal? The goal was uh, t- ten days. You know, mm-hmm. that was kind of the big goal. Um I think that in to get the women's record uh, women's fifty record, right? You know. Right. And make it across within the twelve days, of course, you know, and, and be safe. That's it's really hard to to plan because you don't know what you're gonna face, right? Yeah. You know, we I actually um, we went uh, ten days earlier for the heat to kind of to climatize to those temperatures to bring. You knew it was springs. gonna be a hot year. Well, I mean, there was a heat wave that was we didn't know what was like it was gonna be that. I don't think anybody knew, mm-hmm. right? A week before, it was like you know like 90 degrees in Borrego Springs, which was quite pleasant. I have that at home, right? You uh-huh. know what I mean? So I, but then all of a sudden, you know, we checked the forecast and the day of the race, like, you know, when Ram started, it was about 85. And then as soon as we hit the desert, like four hours later, it went from 85 to 110. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, descending down the glass elevator, I could feel my eyeballs burning, right? You know, yeah. and I don't think anybody was prepared for what we were getting into this year. Yeah. And if it's 110, then the pavement's probably 120. Oh my gosh, yeah. And just the reflection off the pavement, the heat is super oppressive. It was the most intense feeling I'd ever, I'd never, I mean, even in Israel where it's very difficult and hot, yeah. right? You know, we'd never experienced anything like that before. Right. And the trick, the 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 thing was the heat didn't abate. Like it, it wasn't just through the desert, like no. it was an unprecedented, it, heat wave for the entire experience. Entire, yeah. Even at nighttime, I mean, it. I mean, the only pleasantry at night is that you didn't have the blazing sun on you, right? But it mm-hmm. was still excruciatingly hot. You know, like it was just. I mean, in Kansas, I burned right through my jersey. It was that intense. Right. The heat was that intense. So with that, you have the challenge is how do I, how do I keep my core temperature from overheating? So what strategies did you deploy with ice and the like to try to you know, ameliorate your body just boiling over? Well, for one, the jersey, like jerseys aren't very friendly for hot temperature. So we just used a cotton men's t-shirt. You know, we had oh, cut wow. slices just to keep it cool. Um, uh-huh. I had like a veil so I wouldn't burn my, my neck, you know? Um, and then in the real intense heat, it was like, it's in like an ice sock, like a long sock, like a scarf full of ice mm-hmm. wrapped around, around my neck. neck. Yeah. And then every, I'm going to say three to four miles, one of my crew members would stand on the side of a road with a bottle of water that I could dump over, douse over my head. Um, and I would dry within, I'm going to say six minutes, I would be completely dry, mm-hmm. right? You know, and then even that wasn't enough. So we had to stop a couple of times for IVs. I needed about three bags of IVs because it was, getting dangerously right. dehydrated. And that's, that's permitted under the that's rules. That's permitted, I yes. Mean, the, the RAM rules are pretty strict well, in terms of what you can and can't do. Correct, but when it's life you know, threatening like that, I mean, I think all of us did. I mean, the two guys that were behind me, they didn't have, I had a, a doctor and nurse with me, right? You know, So 
they, they could give me the IV, right. but they also got the IV in the hospital um, and everyone else had dropped out, right? Mm. Even team, you know, teams had dropped out early into the race, especially right. during um, through California and Arizona. Right, so how many towed the line and, and then how many ended up finishing? I finished on Saturday, 11, 11 days, I believe it was three hours and then 17 hours after me, Eric was the first male and then two hours after him, the last rider came in. Only three people finished. Yeah. And I believe what that about the relays? teams- I, A lot of relays dropped out I'm not out exactly too. sure, don't quote me on this, but I believe half of them did drop out. Mm-hmm. That's when you know it's bad. You know it's because bad. Because if the relays are dropping out where yeah. they're getting rest. Yeah. It's gotta be insane. Yeah, I mean, just try standing in those temperatures, let alone yeah. ride, right? Yeah. You know, it was crazy. And on top of that, like in Kansas, because at that point it was between myself and Mark who was leading the, the field at that time. Mm-hmm. He was from the United Kingdom. We both had a headwind for like, I'm gonna say close to 20 hours. It was just relentless. Wow. At what point, okay, so you, you, you complete the race in 11 days, three hours. You are the first woman to ever win the race outright in the 39 year history of this race. At what point during the race did you feel like you had a shot at winning? Well, it was kind of way in the back of my head in the start, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I knew Mark was a nine dayer, right? I mean, he's done it like I think, I believe nine times, the, guy, the man from the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. he was the favorite to win. So, I mean, when I kind of knew it was when I passed him in the Appalachians, right? You know, but I didn't do no victory speech or anything like that because anything can happen during RAM. You know what I mean? You don't do that because I still had a lot of miles to go. The Appalachians is what really separates everybody, yeah. right? I mean, that's, that's when it gets the real. Yeah. yeah, it's with the, the climbs are steep, not like the Rockies where it's kind of more gradual. These mm-hmm. are steep, sharp climbs and it's just climb after climb after climb. And I was kind of, when, when him and I were going back and forth, I was kind of trying to conserve as much as possible because that's kind of where my strength is, is the climbing, right? You know, um, but I think he pulled out before we even, you know, as we were getting into the Appalachians, mm-hmm. I think he pulled out of the race. Right. But as you said, anything can happen and you almost didn't finish within almost seeing distance of the finish line. Oh, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh my gosh, yeah, I'll never forget that till the day I die. So, I mean, I think that day I was really overheated. You know, electrolyte balance is super important to Mm -hmm. keep everything intact. And I was hot and tired and I wasn't eating right. wasn't, you know, couldn't drink really as much as I wanted to and just wanted to get the thing over with. And all of a sudden my heart just elevated, like it was beating at 200 beats an hour and I got super dizzy, right? And 200 sh- beats a minute, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. a minute, sorry. And I basically fell off my bike onto a patch of grass that was on you know, the right side, thank God it was there, you know? And I just started to tremble and I've never experienced that before, right? You know, and so my crew comes out, they're trying to cool me down and, you know, and, and I said, you know what? And, and the finish is right there, right? You know, uh-huh. and, and I'm terrified because I can't get up, right? And so I, I relax a little bit more than I get up and I said, you know what? I'm allowed to walk with the bike, you know? You can't have anyone right. help, so no one touch me. So my crew- And you got like 10 hours on the guy behind you. 
Yeah, no, I at had- At least, yeah, right? No, I, More no, than at that? At that point, I had 17 hours, right? right? Okay. But so still, you, can, you want you to come take to the a finish. I mean, people are waiting for me. <laughs> right. You know, it was crazy. So I so I start walking the bike with like, so my crew member, you know, she gives me her pink running shoes. So I, you can see me walking. There's pictures of me walking with the bike and then mm-hmm. into the actual finish, it's a little bit of a descend. So I didn't want to, you know, walk. I was kind of embarrassed. So I said, okay, you know what? I can get just roll into. So you can see in the real finish of, of Race Across America, I'm rolling in and then you can see two crew members right you know, running beside me to catch me just in case I if fall, you fall over, it, right? You tipped over and yeah. you got running shoes on. I have running shoes on, these big uh-huh. oversized pink running shoes, you know, and then as soon as I cross the line, you see the ambulance, the fire department come and they're all taking my vitals and wanting me to go to the hospital and all that kind of stuff, right? So it wow. was, but that was honestly, it was a scary moment. I was in total panic mode. Uh-huh. Do you have memory of that? I mean, sometimes when that kind of stuff happens, like it, you're you're in a semi blackout. No, I remember very you do. well. You do. <laughs> I remember <laughs> the panic on my uh-huh. face, the panic on my crew's face. Go, oh my god, it's like right there. You know, what I mean, you can right. smell it, right? That close, but I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, I had a pretty good cushion, a good lead on on the mm-hmm. guy behind. But you know, you still want to. There's a crowd sure. waiting for you, and yeah, you, know, you want to look good crossing look that good. line. That's, exactly. You're gonna the, the picture's <laughs> gonna get taken, right? Yeah, exactly. So, 52 years old. First woman to ever win this race. I mean, what does that say about athletic potential as we age and also the difference between men and women when it comes to endurance and ultra endurance specifically? My, I mean, women tend to just get better and better and better. And that gap between men and women um, narrows considerably as you age up and mm-hmm. gets eclipsed as mm-hmm. in your case. I often. think, yeah, I think that's, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm not a scientist. I don't know the science behind it, but I I believe like with a race like Race Across America, it's 70% mental, 30% physical, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, and, in, and in this particular one, even if you talk to Eric and I, I am sorry, I don't know the gentleman that came in second, but um, it was a race of attrition, right? Of who can take the most suffering because you honestly could not ride as hard as you wanted right. to. It was I survival, mean, not It was survival, racing. exactly. So it was a different type of race, right? You know, but like you said, I think it does, the gap does get, you know, narrower because a lot of women have won, you know, the transcontinental, a German lady won the race, you know, some ultra running races, a couple mm-hmm. of women have won races. So I think the yeah, the gap does close as you get into the longer races where it's not so much on, on your strength, right? But on yeah. your mental ability, right? Yeah. And how much pain you can take. Yeah, women can take more pain. I think, Jays, well, I maybe, think. yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think you're a living example mm-hmm. of that. Um, are you gonna do this again? Oh, absolutely. I didn't, I mean, I you was, didn't. you didn't meet your time goal. I did not meet my time right. goal. So I remember crossing the line and I go, ah, damn, I got to do it again. <laughs> I was kidding. I just, I'm just fixated on 10 days. Uh-huh. I just, you know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm really pushing the envelope. I'm not, you know, a spring chicken, but I still feel that I have the ability to ride it in 10 days. And what did you learn with this Ram that will be instructive in terms of tweaking your training for the next one? I have to learn, it's, it's the heat. I mean, honestly, if you take the heat away, I think I, I believe I could have made my goal. Mm-hmm. I really do. I felt like I, I was smarter this time. My crew was smarter. We were prepared navigational wise. We made very little error, you know. Um, yeah, I think that it's just, I think just the weather conditions is what handicapped us, right? It was, like I said, it wasn't just one section of the race. It was right across the country. Yeah. So when you're done, how long do you then sleep for? 
Or is your body just so messed up that you can only sleep like an hour and then you're up again? Yeah, your body is pretty messed up. It took me, I'm gonna say almost a week before, you know, I could Uh go into that regular cycle. Because you're in this trauma. It's like your body's trying to protect you from dying, right? And it takes a while before it realizes like, oh, the heat's off. Like, is there a, and then there's a crash, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think too, it's important. Like I got on the bike pretty fast um, when I felt like I, you know, I had some pretty serious saddle sores, right? Mm-hmm. But like just spinning, just really light spinning is moving the body. Cause I don't think you want a cold turkey. I don't think it's good for the body. You know, I think you'll recover faster if you stay. Cause you know, you think about all the training leading up to this race, mm-hmm. right? And just to do nothing. I think that is worse for you than actually getting back and doing. So I did, I mean, I, I because of COVID I had to quarantine. So I did a lot of trainer workouts at home, right. you know, for the two weeks. But I think that really helped me recover. And again, as I was telling you, I think it was the body. I mean, I couldn't push myself as hard as I wanted to. So my muscles weren't particularly sore mm-hmm. as the damage to my skin, my face and whatnot, yeah. right? you know? Oh my God. And the other thing is you did this plant-based, you're a plant-based athlete. Correct. Yeah, how long yeah. have you been plant-based? Well, it, it's funny, I've, it's been in phases, right? I mean, I actually stopped eating meat when I was, I think a little girl. I uh-huh. just loved animals so much. And you think about it in my generation, right? At five years, old, I said, mom, I'm not eating yeah. meat anymore, right? You know, and I I was vegan right until the military. I was um, mostly, fr- I could call it a fruitarian, you know? Mm. And I remember in the military, they said, oh, you're gonna get osteoporosis and you're gonna, you know, you're not gonna do well And this side. I mean, I was, the top of my game in the military. Right. You're like, I'm the one training you yeah. how to do this. Right. But it was more the doctor saying that, mm. right? But I, I think, as I, as I think I, I told you earlier is that a lot of the soldiers, like the the commando soldiers were were vegetarians. Like mm. the, the military really catered. Like you didn't have that in Canada, right? Like there was a whole section in the, in the military in the food room called the food room where, you know, um, the food is made for the soldiers. Half the food room is all vegan options, right? Wow. You know, and it was, I was amazed at that, you know, during that time that a lot of soldiers high, you know, even a lot of the athletes, they were, you know, not necessarily just plant-based, but just vegetarians or, you know, didn't eat eggs, dairy or whatnot, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then I moved back to Canada, to Canada and on the national team, the issue was, is I didn't have the, the food that I needed, right? Like the, when we're in Europe, they fed you. So right. what they would give me was white bread, you know, mm-hmm. cheese and whatnot, right? So the dietitian there said, you know, you have to start eating a little bit of meat and whatnot, you know, to get your strength back. And so I did, I, so I flipped back and I started eating meat, um, not feeling too great, but not feeling too great either because, you know, you can be vegetarian and not healthy Poorly. by just eating yeah. the wrong foods, right? Um, and then I remember watching the game changer and I saw Dotsie there and I go, what the hell, you uh-huh. know? And so I remember, and I, and I called her and I said, Dotsie, thank God I saw you on, you know what I mean? And I just, my dad just said, you just watch this documentary, uh-huh. right? And I thought, what an idiot I am, right? You know what I mean? And as soon as I did, everything, all my, everything went up. My, right. my recovery was better. I rode stronger, I rode faster. I felt great, I slept better, you know what I mean? So, yeah. That's So it's kind of like in waves, right? Sure. Uh-huh. You know? Um, yeah, but and Game Changers only came out a couple of years ago, so you only deployed that plant-based diet in the most recent RAM th- about two and a half years ago. Yeah, mm. the, this most recent one, correct? Yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. And you could feel a difference. Oh, for sure. Right. I mean, I know how I felt back in. You know, it depends what your options are to eat. Right. You know, um, 
and just going that route. I mean, instantly within the week, I said, this is how I felt when I was in, in the military, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and you forget about that, right? But mind you, even when I was eating, I didn't eat beef or anything, just a little bit of chicken and fish. I still didn't feel good or didn't feel, you know, because I do it for humanitarian reasons. Not, you know, I, at that time I wasn't thinking about the health right. reasons. You would of be it, doing right? it irrespective of how it impacted your athletic performance. Right, right. And so, but yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer. I don't push it on people or whatever. Right. But yeah, you're low key yeah. about it. Like you, yeah. you don't, you're not out on the pulpit, you know. No, no. Banging I mean, the drum about this. No, I mean, to each their own. Everybody knows what's good and yeah. what's right. You know, I'm not there to tell you what to do, but I know what works for me and what makes me feel good. You know, so. Yeah. Have you met Dotsie? Oh yeah, we raced together. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. so you know her from I, your I racing know her. years. Yeah, oh, yeah, I know her. that's cool. Yeah. She's the best. Yeah, yeah, oh, I totally know oh, her, yeah. that's great. <laughs> she's awesome, yeah. That's cool. It's like she slapped me through the TV, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was meant to be. I, I know her. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, so what is a, uh, a day in the life of food look like for you when you're training really hard? When I'm training really hard, well, I do a lot of um, smoothies. Like I'm like to stick to liquids on the mm-hmm. bike as much as possible. Yeah, you're pretty much liquid during RAM yeah. throughout, right? You just can't, st- especially in the heat, you yeah. wouldn't be able to keep down I couldn't any eat anything, food. no. And if I could, it's just fruit. Like watermelon is big, grapes are big, like the juicy fruits kind uh-huh. of stuff, you know? What about dates? Dates, um, I didn't use dates. I mean, I use it in training, but not so much in the race. Um, uh, hammer is my, they have a lot of hammer mm-hmm. uh, vegan bars and stuff. Sure. They'd be my, they have awesome, you know, uh, vegan protein powders or whatever. I like how you call it vegan. Huh? Or vegetarian, vegan, vegan. vegan. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Canadian thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I mean. But in training, like walk me through like the, the real foods that you're eating. The real, well, I mean, they would give me wraps, um, uh, tofu scramble wraps, mm-hmm. you know, avocado was a big one, um, uh, rice, you know, mm-hmm. uh, beans. But keeping it simple. Just keep that, like just in little wraps and giving me from the bike, like, you know, you're, you're doing everything right. on the bike, right? So just simple light foods. Cause again, you don't have a huge appetite. You just don't, if you just keep it consistent, a lot of fluids. Again, in that kind of heat, as you know, it's really difficult to yeah. eat. And the training, I mean, you're on the bike like 60 hours a week, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But you live where it gets cold. Mm-hmm. How much of that is indoors on a trainer versus out on the road? In the winter, it's 100% indoors mm. because I live in Vernon. So you cannot ride out. I mean, you can mm-hmm. with the snow bike. I know the big fat tires. Yeah. I don't do that. So, but I'll start, like I'll cross train with running, like, you know, trail running ice. With the, it's called crampons. There's little spikes on the bottom sure. of your shoes or whatever. So I'll do that. Or I'll drive to Vancouver. My parents live there. You can ride there. It's very rainy, but you can ride outside. But I'm gonna say trainer workouts in the winter, it's probably about 70, 70 to 80% for mm-hmm. me. And how do you deal with just the mental doldrums of that? That's right. Like, do you watch movies and listen to music? <laughs> no, or? sorry, no, no way. Just I don't, a complete I deprivation tank. Don't listen to music. Just I don't look at my Notch up the suffering. Yeah, no television, no nothing. Cause uh-huh. I don't get that when I race, right? Sure. You know, like in Kansas, all you see is road for yeah. you know, 20 hours. So I guess that's I another to, level of discipline. Cause it yeah. would be so easy to just set up a laptop in front of you and watch something while you're doing no, it. Like I remember like even sometimes that's uh, weak. downstairs, if somebody turns on the TV, I almost found it, find it like a distraction. Right, mm. I just try to. So where does your mind go? It just goes to what I'm doing. Like I'll replicate a course or a ride or whatever. Like I'll do like uh, replicate a climb. You know, okay, I'm gonna ride flat here for 20k or whatever, mm-hmm. and then I'll climb for two hours and I'll go down to the flats again. So I'll, I'll play things in my in my head, right? You know, but but that's race across America. You just have to be in robot yeah. mode. 
and just keep pedaling, look yeah. forward and don't think about anything else. Time becomes very fluid and malleable. Like when you've been doing that for a while and you increase your volume, suddenly what used to feel like forever feels like nothing. Mm -hmm. Like an eight hour ride can feel like a two hour ride when exactly. you've acclimated yourself to it, but it does require that level of discipline. Right, well, I mean, it's training too. Like I remember, it's funny that you say that because sometimes like like veering the end of my training, I'd be so, I go, yeah, I only have to do 10 hours today. Right, right? Yeah, but it's all perspective. A person, <laughs> yeah. But that's better than 20 hours, yeah. right? So that's funny that you, know, that you say that and like going for a four hour ride is a warm up. you know what I mean? Uh -huh. So again, like you said, it's in perspective, but for around that's what you're gonna do for, mm -hmm. you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 days, right? So it's better that you train and you know what that feels like, you know, rather than experiencing that in the race. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about how martial arts interplay with endurance sports. Like I'm interested in what you've kind of gleaned from being a martial artist, a combat athlete, and what lessons from that world are applicable to ultra endurance and, and, and vice versa? Like how do the, those, those worlds complement each other. Well, I think it's discipline and consistency, right? You know, like with combat sports and Taekwondo, whatever, or mm -hmm. martial arts, you have to train and practice because it's a skilled sport, you know? Riding is more, you're just pedaling, you know what I mean? It's a mental thing of, but you have to practice. And again, and, and even when you're having those days where you just don't want to do it, you have to do it, right? Because you're not always going to have those great days few and far you know, mm -hmm. beyond, you can have those great days. So I think it's a matter of, again, of the consistency and no matter what you're, where you are, how you feel that you, you gotta do whatever you have to do. Mm -hmm. A key difference being when you're a, a combat sports athlete, you have an opponent, mm -hmm. but in endurance, really the opponent is you. Right. Like you're not, there are other people in the race, but it's kind of irrelevant because yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a contest between you and yourself. Exactly. Um, it's, there's nothing more difficult than kickboxing. I'll tell you that much. It's like exactly what you said, because you have more control when you're doing cycling or whatever, you can stop it. But if you stop when you're fighting someone, they'll beat you up, you know what I mean? That uh -huh. you have to be one up on that, right? You know, so I found it way more challenging and way more important to be on top of your game in that particular sport, because the, the objective of that sport is to knock the other person down. Sure. So, and also if you drop your guard, you can get, Injured in like one hurt, second, right? And like you can just get off your bike. Yeah. I mean, maybe you fall asleep on your bike and you tip over. Yeah. That's not so good. Or you crash descending 80 miles an hour and peel your face off. Right. But generally, you know, the stakes are a little bit more dire and higher in a combat. Oh, situation, for sure. of oh, course, there's no, right? There's no comparison. Yeah, there's not, yeah. yeah. There's no comparison. So they're, they're very different in that yeah. regard. Yeah. But the discipline, the, the, um, like attention to detail and precision, mm -hmm. like in, in ultra endurance, you can kind of, because it's so long, like you're not gonna be perfect, right? Mm -hmm. So precision is less applicable, mm -hmm. but you have to stay on top of all those details like saddle sores and your nutrition schedule and all of that. Like right. there's a rigor to that, Actually. I think that is demanding and essential if you're gonna you know, compete to your potential. Right, but it becomes almost systematic. Like, you know, the routine, you know what, like you said, there's way more elements in ultra endurance racing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just a matter of doing one thing. Like you said, it's nutrition, it's clothing, it's it's your bike, it's everything, right? So, but it becomes almost like second nature. That's why being consistent, right, with it and not, um, you know, not doing the training when you, even when you don't feel like it is, is, is important, right? You know, and staying on top of your game and always pushing harder than you want to push. Like I try to, 
train harder than I would in a race. Mm-hmm. So the race almost feels easy, right? You know, not just a matter of sitting on your bike and pedaling away mindlessly, right? There's a purpose to what you're doing, right? And I think mm-hmm. for me, that's really important, you know what I mean? To prepare yourself, especially when you're going after a goal, like we're going after a 10 day goal. So I have to be come to that line in the best shape possible, right? You know, so that, and that requires a lot of training, specific training, sure. being on top of it and consistency. Opposed mm-hmm. to, okay, I just wanna finish in 12 days. That's a whole different ball game, right? Mm-hmm. But what I'm going after is a little bit more intense. So the precision organization and having a good team behind you, like my crew has to be on the same page as me. And that's, people don't realize how important, you know, your your finish is, is determined by your crew, how good your crew is, right? right? It you is know? a team sport it's very much It's a total in that, team sport, in that right? Sense. And you think about putting nine people together, right? Oh, the there's chemistry. legendary stories of, oh my of God. crews blowing up and leaving. Ab- and oh yeah, the, yeah, we yeah, had like one. I mean, in you? 20, you'll see, I mean, we have a documentary <laughs> yeah. coming out. You'll see one crew member taking out, you know, taking off in the car, right? She, he just took off, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy. The dynamics that go in, like that's a whole new podcast yeah. for you, right? Well, you, know? <laughs> you, you would think like we're in an RV or we're in a van, we're going all the way across the country. This person's on a bike, like, what are we gonna do? We're gonna crank the tunes, we're gonna kick back, it's gonna be awesome. But literally like you're taking bottle drops like every you know 15 minutes or whatever, oh, yeah. like, and they have to sleep too. Yeah. Were you rotating crew members between multiple vehicles? No, it, you have, um, we had, Two two sets of crew members, three and three, right? Uh-huh. So they do twelve hour shifts. You had a day shift and then right. a night shift, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so at least it gives them a bit of time to. But still, there's lots yeah. to fill up the gas. Think of the navigation; they have to eat too, right? You right. know, um, uh, to keep me prepared, yeah. know about the terrain, know about who's where, whatever. You know, there's a lot of things going on. You can ask any crew member that those twelve hours just fly by, and right. it's not like they get twelve hours off. You know, it's no. it's not no such a case, right? They are maybe they get, Israeli commandos. Sorry, are they? <laughs> should, no, they should be. No, they should be. You they know? could be. They could. Yeah, be at they'd the be end of like that. Johnny on the spot. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, I think Yuri Rovic had wasn't he like a Slovenian army or something like yes, that, and I think he had he like his whole crew were military guys, and they had like military vehicles, and he had like <sighs> speakers on the crew vehicle that would broadcast like military anthems, like in the middle of the night. Oh, like kidding. there's always weird stories about it. <laughs> okay, yeah. well, maybe I should try that. <laughs> I I'll try like, that next year. <laughs> well, you don't like any music, right? <laughs> no, I don't. Are you allowed to wear earbuds no, or no, no, you no, can't no, do no. any of that, Just right? the earbuds to your car. Yeah. And then and only no one. And no crew member can actually like touch you, no. right? And you can't touch the crew. Via, how does that work? Well, I mean, I can't hold on to you the car, right. you know, but mm. let's say like when I'm getting off the bike, say I take a bathroom break and I'm clipping in, he can give me a push or he or she can right. just push me off, but no. Cause there was a thing when that at the, in the last mile, when you got handed the running shoes, like wasn't it? There, no, it the was, running shoes, I was off the bike. They just, I was already, I, I was on the grass uh-huh. and then I, cause I, you can't do that on the bike. Right. So I, yeah. But, but they can't touch the bike. Like there's all this, I don't know exactly what the rules well, are, but I know can, it's very strict. They can assist you like when you're starting, cause you know, you're very wobbly, right? Like mm-hmm. if you look at how, you know, you're, cause, cause of the momentum on the bike, it kind of, they can stabilize you and just give you but one But once little... you get off the bike, you, you look like a drunk person. So they right. can, you know, kind of veer you on, stabilize you, give you a little push, but it's not like they can push you for half a mile or something like that, right? So uh-huh. you wanna be realistic on to right. what, but for safety reasons, they're allowed to assist you that way. But when you're on the bike and you're riding, they can't touch you. Mm-hmm. And you're geotagged the whole time. So the organizers know where every competitor Absolutely. is. So when you run into a scenario like there's there's construction or the bridge is washed out or something like that, like how do you figure out 
how to proceed without getting disqualified. Well, for example, we were in the lead coming into te- uh, to Kansas and the bridge was washed out. It's mm. like you said, so we call headquarters. They give me a time credit for them to figure it out. They look on route and they give me a detour, right? And don't wow. forget, there are officials on route, right? And normally, but there wasn't one ahead, far enough ahead of us mm-hmm. to catch that obstruction. So then they give you a reroute on that. So that happens many times. That's why you're in constant communication with headquarters. Right. Talk to me about the documentary. Okay, well. What's going on? <laughs> well, I watched I, the trailer. Yeah, did you watch the- yeah. It's exciting. Well, the documentary is just basically, um, it's based on the book, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. gonna, it follows me through round. Well, you're rewriting the book right now, aren't you? Yes, we yeah. are. We're updating the book, we'll just say. We're gonna mm-hmm. have a new name, new cover, you know, and just add a few more chapters, just freshen it up a yeah, little there's bit. There's a lot more to the story. There is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we need multiple books, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so we'll kind of squish it a little bit. Um, yeah, and then the documentary, they started filming in 2019, 2018 actually, mm-hmm. and kind of go back a little bit on my past and leading right. up to There's the like race. There's like footage of you competing as a kickboxer, right? Like just like footage of you as a kid. Correct, yeah. yeah. Yes, there's, yeah. yeah, you'll see lots of old footage. It's funny. Yeah. So what's the plan <laughs> with the doc? Well, right now we're just, actually we just had a screening last night. Oh, you, you know, did? Yeah, so we're, cause the, the, the producer and director actually lives in mm-hmm. LA. So this is perfect. Um, so yeah, we had a screening. It still needs to get a little bit, um, some graphics done, some coloring, some music. And then we're hoping for next, next, uh, next year, yeah. the summer. And what's your training look like right now? Well, I just finished doing? my last week prior to coming to LA, right? You know, so I'll take about like three or four weeks. When I say off, I'll just cross train. I'll just do keep with the core work and then do some running and hiking and hang out with my dogs and family and do uh-huh. some normal things, yeah. you know. And then like occasionally flip a house. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> pay the bills. <laughs> if I see something, <laughs> perhaps. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. Well, to round this out, I mean, I think it would be helpful for people who are listening or watching who perhaps have difficulty kind of connecting with the specific specifics of your story because you're superhuman in the things that you do, but the principles I think are applicable to anyone. So mm-hmm. for that person who feels a little bit stuck or is struggling with their, you know, maybe it's their weight or their fitness, or they're just looking to kind of mix up their life a little bit and unstick themselves from whatever situation they're in. You as this person who's, you know, thought deeply about a lot of this stuff and, you know, speaks to public groups about this, like how do you how do you trigger that person to think differently about their life and perhaps start blazing a new trajectory? Well, I mean, I think too, sometimes hearing other people's stories of what other people have gone through, mm-hmm. you know, helps you kind of regroup and think about your own self, right? Of, you know, what if she can do it or he can do it, you know, and I'm not, I'm honestly not that special. It's just something that I really wanted to do. And I've, you know, and have a passion for, you know, and I think that, I think we idle too much. I think when we're faced with fear, you know, there's this instinct of fight or flight, right? But I think many of us, we freeze, we don't know what to do. And I think it's because we just place too much limitations on ourselves. And, you know, we always focus on that one bad thing that could happen opposed to all the great things that could happen, right? You know, and I think that's what, what you know, handicaps us. You know, and I just think my motto is, you know, it's not, you know, how many times you fall, right? It's how many times you can get back up and and not to sit there and wait for things to happen. Life's too short. You can't Mm -hmm. sit there and wait for things to happen because nothing will happen. It's a matter of you taking the responsibility, you know, stepping forward and make your life whatever you want it to be, right? Because, you know, possibilities are endless. Yeah. I think that's really powerful and helpful. I mean, when I think about you and what you've done in your story, I mean, your superpower really is this refusal to quit. And you have talents, like you're 
naturally very athletic, but you weren't born with extraordinary gifts like, you know, Michael Phelps's feet or something right. like that. Like you you <laughs> yeah. you've put yourself in difficult positions and you've worked your ass off to succeed and you've had obstacles along the way, but you understand that the talent deficit gap gets narrowed by dint of your ability and determination to outwork everybody else. Like it's a work ethic thing with you. Well, I mean, that's what I'm saying is like, you don't have to be gifted in whatever you choose to do. Cause there's a gift all of us have and it's called the gift of work, like you just said, right? And it's a matter of utilizing that. Cause I wasn't gifted as a cyclist. I'm not gifted as a cyclist. And I knew I had to work. You spent nine times. years. Well, that's what I mean, to, but, yeah. I, but I worked my butt off to get there, right? <laughs> right? You know, and sometimes you do, you have to work harder than your, you know, the, the person behind you or beside you or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's the reality of making things happen, but it doesn't mean you can't make it happen, right? Because everyone has something that lights their fire, right? And you know, it might not come easy, but whatever you choose to do, you know, you have to make it to whatever your finish line is. You know, even if it's not the outcome that you want, and if it's not as fast as you want to get there, is your goal is just to get there no matter what it takes. Mm, I think that's a good place to to put a pin in it for All now. Right. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that was super fun talking to you. Thank How do you, you. feel? I'm feeling good. Feel good. Thanks for having me. Yes, yeah, thank you. you. You look all happy and yeah. fired up, so yeah. that's good. Um, cool. Well, awesome. until the documentary comes out and until the new edition of the book comes out, people can find your book, No Limits, on Amazon mm-hmm. and all or the places. Our website, yeah. Or on your website, yeah. Yeah. which is your name, mm-hmm. right? Is, right, correct. Where are the places that you want to direct people who want to learn more about you? I think just that's Facebook. LeahGoldstein.com. Yeah. Com. yeah. Mm-hmm. Instagram, yeah. Your 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 accounts on social media are at like Leia No Limits. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. L E A H. Correct. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, yeah. keep me posted. If there's Thank anything you. I can do to help around the documentary, or you know, just to help get the word out about your story. Awesome. Um, Thank you. I appreciate I'm at your that. service. Yeah, I really do. Thank I mean, you. it's really powerful. The things that you have done are unbelievable and the lessons behind them, I think are even more instructive. And I just want more people to be aware of your journey. Thank so you so it was much. a delight to talk to you. Thank Thanks you. so much. Do you have a copy of the book? I don't. Can no. I give you one? Yeah, of yeah. course. Okay. Yeah, of yeah. course. Cool. Awesome. I'll give you a few books too. Awesome. That'd be great. <laughs> right, Thank you. Cool. And we'll talk again soon. Yes. Yeah, thanks. thanks so much. Rich. I appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube, and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is, of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis 
with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davy Greenberg. Graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love. Love the support. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.